Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, a Song of Ice and Fire, episode 135, Cattle and Seven in a Clash of Kings, featuring Monero. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. And yes, today is such a big episode, not only because of the chapter, but also because of, again, we are joined by our friend Monero. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. If you're listening and you haven't had a chance to check out Monero's YouTube channel, Monero Geek TV, um, Monero talks about everything. And if you don't yeah. find her on her channel, you'll find her on someone else's. She's always getting videos up on not just A Song of Ice and Fire rereads and theories with a lot of her friends, uh, but Game of Thrones, The Witcher, The Expanse, you name it. Monero, we're so excited to have you on. I know that we we haven't really uh, gotten to record lately. Last time we hanged out was during a, a very special ginger ale chat, <laughs> a very wild special ginger ale chat. Yes. What have you been up to? What are you recording lately? Actually, I'm starting a new series called Naro Bedtime Stories, where I take excerpts from different books that I am that I read and I take those excerpts and I just read them as bedtime stories in Ooh. sort of a ASMR-ish type style. That's what I've been working on. I'm hoping to release my first one the first week of September. Wow. So what stories are on your docket? Can you tell us a couple of what ones you're excited about? I have some excerpts from The Witcher. Hmm. I have some, of course, from A Song of Ice and Fire. I also have from The Expanse, the books, hmm. Harry Potter. I also have some, May I may or may not have some <clears throat> erotica. <clears throat> hey bedtime we're in the sex dungeon episode so yeah this is a sex dungeon episode (laughs) so it makes sense why you want it on for this this is yet another bedtime story for monero that is a bedtime story isn't it it's kind of a fucked up bedtime story (laughs) as we get into it (laughs) another project that i'm working on is i'm going to be starting an anime series on my channel as well which again I also hope to have that launched in September. So the bedtime stories I hope to have out weekly, every Friday. And the anime series will probably be like the first Monday of every month. Because I'm trying to work those two things in. Mm -hmm. I'm batch recording the bedtime stories since they're just maybe anywhere between 10 to 15 minutes a piece and then the anime series is a little bit more involved there's more things that i have to get into to try to squeeze in to like maybe a 10 minute video so um uh, yeah yeah those are the two projects that i'm working on aside if anybody else wants to have me on for anything <laughs> Wait, what uh what anime series are you starting with um, actually, I'm going to start with one of my all-time favorites called Naruto. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yes. But I'm going to start with the actual original series of Naruto and then go into Naruto Shippuden and then go into the Boruto series. So plenty of, plenty of material to go through, but I will be interjecting others that I'm also watching. But the first one I'm going to kick off with is Naruto because it's like my all-time favorite uh, anime. Amazing. 
Do you are you going like episode by episode for this or I'm doing like block episodes because if I were okay. to go episode by episode, it would like drag out for a very long <laughs> yeah, time. I was like, that's okay. a long ass series. Yeah, so I'm doing <laughs> like episodes. I, I'm I'm doing blocks, so I'm going arc by arc, and then okay. I'll do the blocks of blocks of episodes. So basically, I might do three blocks of episodes for per arc, so that way it doesn't like drag out. You know, because again, yeah. I do want to talk about other animes. And the great thing about a lot of these animes, they're separated by different arcs. And so you can yeah. like talk about like, I don't know, 10 to 15 episodes to kind of, you know, bring everybody up to speed if in case they have never seen the um, anime itself. And maybe it might pique their interest or maybe they might be able to revisit it because they haven't seen it in a while. So that's great. That's really great. Well, yeah. call me when you're ready for Cowboy Bebop. I'll be on standby. I'm here. I'm your girl. Love ring, it. ring. <laughs> I love Cowboy Bebop. That's mine. That's probably my all-time favorite, that. And uh, Eliana and I do have a date we keep talking about that we're going to pull some Sailor Moon episodes out. Ooh. So, yeah. Oh, no. Or, uh, or if you want to talk Evangelion. I'm always yeah, also... Yeah, Evangelion. That's another big love of ours. What else? I don't know. I, I, I didn't want to, like, sign myself up for just one. I was like, I don't know. I'm flexible. <laughs> <laughs> Eliana is open and ready is what she's saying. <laughs> But anyway, so that's exciting. I'm excited for you to start both of these projects. Yeah. So am I, yeah. I have, I've been away for a very long time, so this is a great way for me to come back into the YouTube scene. With a bang, too. That's a lot. That is a lot to take on. So I'm excited to see it. In more ways than one, with the erotic. They just movie. won't be coming <laughs> as often, but I will bring back the ginger ale chats, like, maybe once a month. I haven't just figured out what day in a month yet. Those those are some crazy episodes. <laughs> but, but, you know, breaks are important. So I think, you know, that's great that you found some time to rest and are like bringing it back in. So, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, before we jump into Jamie and of course, oh God, I'm so pegging? sorry. Wow. Pegging, pegging this early in the episode. Phrasing. Oh, wow. <sighs> phrasing. Let Kim. me backtrack phrasing on this one. Yes. Thanks, ladies. Before we get into our project of the day, which is Catalan 7, Prison Dungeon Sex episode, we got to go through our housekeeping real quick. We do have a Patreon episode, special episode coming out for Stranger Tier and Above patrons this month. That will be, of course, Eliana Enchanted. It's well, not Ella Ella Enchanted. Enchanted. It, it is. It's, it's Eliana Enchanted. That's the book. No, it's Ella Enchanted. We're going to be talking all about Ella Enchanted uh, for a person who I know who was born this month. So... It is in honor of them, and their name is in the title of the episode, so you can figure it out. This will be out by the end of the month, patrons. Eliana Enchanted. Make sure you read up on it. It's a quick read. 300, 400 pages, and you'll enjoy it. You'll love it. And it's like big text, you know, because it's in like lots of spacing because it was written for younglings. Yeah, it's like a break. It's a mental break, you know, just sit there, put some earbuds in, some fantasy music on. They, they got that stuff on YouTube, and you could just... Yeah. Read Ella Enchanted. Come get lost with us over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. And if you're over in the Thunder tier or above, you have access to our Discord. And if you have access to our Discord, you have access to monthly brunch and happy hour. Yes. And this month, our monthly brunch slash happy hour, we are, again, still deciding on a theme, but it is going to be on Saturday, August 28th. But we have ideas. The court has brought ideas. We've to, got to the ideas. 
And some of them are related to some of the things that we've done lately. Maybe not necessarily here on this podcast, but on other things. So if you were paying attention. (laughs) Yeah, with your sharp eye. And this is the last of Song of Ice and Fire episode for August. I know it's a little early, but... We will, after this episode, be coming out with our HDM episode, our His Dark Materials episode for the month. We were kind of off last month due to some health stuff, but we'll be back here, back in action for September. So look out for Cattle in One in a Storm of Swords out on Friday, September 3rd. Yes. So, with that, so we did get a Podbean comment of note from our friend Brian, who... Thank you, Brian Afars, for continuing to leave Podbean comments. Um, and I thought this was like really went in well with this episode and you know what's going to happen with Catelyn. So wanted to bring this in. And Brian says about last week's episode, well put about the kids being an extension of oneself. I've had 14 years of the 50-50 schedule with my son, and it does feel like you're losing a part of you. Most important thing for you to remember is you're still their parent when they are away, and there's no shame in working on yourself or your happiness. Nothing ever fills the void, but it does help stave away the darkness and guilt. Now I got a little Rob Stark, thinking he's a king and doesn't need me when he's here. And he also added that Ryman the Rhymer is now Scott Stapp in his headcanon, thanks to me, so you're welcome. I think that's good. I can hear him all, Wolf in the night. Oh my god. You know, just... I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of forgot, I didn't too. know he the name it. of the frontman of Creed until uh, this moment. Until this moment? Literally right now. You could call this Eliana's sacrifice. It's a Creed joke. Thank you. There goes uh, my innocence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well, we'll get rid of the Creed. We'll get right into the depression, you know. But first, we do have a lightning round. Uh, lightning round. Monero, of course, is ready for. She seems primed, ready to jump right into the storm that is our lightning round here. So take it away, Eliana. Brand six. Brand watches Jojen's visions come true through Summer's eyes. Arya nine. The bloody mummers bring 100 Northmen to Harrenhal, and Arya hatches a plot to free them with Jack and Hagar. She becomes Roose Bolton's new cupbearer, Nan. Daenerys 4. Daenerys is trapped within the House of the Undying, but Drogon comes to her aid. <sighs> Tyrion 11. Tyrion sends his men to raid Stannis' baggage trains. Balin Swan and Osmond Kettleblack are inducted into the Kingsguard. Tyrion meets with pyromancers and fairies. Theon 4. Theon hunts for the missing nobles of Winterfell, but when he's unable to find them, Reek offers him a solution. John 6. A fight ensues between Free Folk and John and Quarren. The survivor is a young woman who tells John the story of Bale the Bard. Quarren commands John kill her, but John is unable to swing the sword. Womp womp. Oh, he swings that sword later. <laughs> oh. No spoilers, sorry, wow. <laughs> we can, this is a reread. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Sansa 4. Sansa meets Dantos in the Godswood, where she's told to be patient for her escape. She climbs to the roof where Sandor surprises her, bringing her back to her room after a gruff discussion. She dreams, but when she wakes, her moonblood is upon her. Ugh, the worst. The worst. John 7. Corin tells John Egret does not lie. Mance would accept him to his armies. He dreams through ghosts and he awakens shouting. Corin takes them back toward the fist with their enemy on their trail. Tyrion 12. Wartime planning is not going great between Cersei and Tyrion. Cersei decides to get even with Tyrion. Petty. 
That is best. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to Catalan 7, A Clash of Kings. Catalan and Jamie very narrowly avoid having hate sex. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think there was much else to be said about the chapter. I mean, I <laughs> sure, like, she finds out about, like, big news and stuff, but most importantly. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have read this stuff. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. It's steamy in there. But um, there are other reasons, right? You know, I, I want to start out with Monero. When we asked you which POVs you'd like to join us for, you gave us a couple of them. But one of them was Catalan. And I, you know, wanted to hear a little bit more from you about why why Catalan. I chose Catalan because the group of ladies that I, I'm usually always with, the Mad Queens, shout out to Alicia, T-Baby, Timo, Lady D, Black Wilding. They all give her a hard time. I kind of feel bad for her because I look at her as a a very multidimensional character who has made some choices in life that she thinks are what are best for her children, but she's demonized a lot because of the way that she treated John. And hmm. so I understand some of the hate that she gets because of that. And because John is such a... Well, I don't know if he's like a well-loved character, but I think a lot of people see themselves in John and in how he's portrayed as the bastard of Winterfell. I think a lot of people kind of hate Catelyn for that. And I see her as more than that. Like, I have no favorite characters. I always say that. But I do love the human interest part of A Song of Vice and Fire. And I think she is one of the great human interest stories, if you really take the time to like read her chapters, see where her mind is, see her flaws and how she navigates um, a lot of what has happened to her, her entire family, but her entire family just disappears and is destroyed and is disseminated right before her eyes up until the end of her life and then news of resurrections, which I find kind of weird is that everybody loves this new iteration of her, hmm. but in her human self, a lot of people were so quick to be so judgmental of her, but everybody is more accepting of this new, the rebirth of her new self where she's just a creature of vengeance. And so I guess everybody is just projecting their need for vengeance for the Starks, and she is that vehicle through which that they can express that vengeance that they are seeking. And so for me, I just want to, I guess, hope to people who don't like her human character, the human side of her, will take a second look and try to be a little bit more open and not just judge her because of how she treated John, but also because of how fiercely protective she was of her children. Yeah, that's that's perfectly said. Um, I think, I don't know, I have nothing else to say that was like a perfect perfect encapsulation of like, podcast is over. Those are all the cat yeah. chapters. Go home, ladies. We did it. <laughs> Monero it. did it. That was it. We don't even have to finish Catalan anymore. We can just move on to the next POV, which is obviously going to be... Lady Stoneheart. <laughs> uh, I really love the way you put that. And... I actually, I'm coming into this, I think, trying to be harder on her this time through because I feel like I sympathize very greatly for her and I am seeing a lot of the flaws and I'm seeing a lot of what I think a lot of the fandom really doesn't like 
about her. Um, but I mean, in one scenario, you know, you can see where her choices, especially in wartime, are not appropriate. Mm. But I would do the same thing. I would burn it all down. I mean, if I had these children and I, I was split like this, you know, like cut in five pieces, and I couldn't, I mean, I was immobilized, right? Like she's immobilized. She doesn't have real power. I would do anything I could to get my children back. So I get it. I mean, end of the chapter. I would do it. I would have freed Jamie too. And I don't even like the motherfucker that much. So <laughs> jot that one down. I would have freed him if it meant get my daughters back. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. It's painful. I get it. This chapter is sad. We're about to get into a real oh, yeah. sad first half of the chat. Like, I was all thinking it was dungeon sex, you guys. And it's not all dungeon sex in this chapter. Like the first what? half, the first half I of the chapter. Dungeon sex. It is. I lied. I lied to you. Uh, it's horrible, horrific. Yeah. Oh, God. It's super depressing. <laughs> Shit. I think George did a very great job of capturing her grief, even yeah. so far as. Um, how many times, if you've ever been, like, if you're really having a bad day or if you're really, you know, feeling very depressive and you're in a room where everybody else is so happy and mm. you're just so angry and so hurt, you're hurting inside. And it's like, it's just the juxtaposition of the grief that she's feeling compared to these people are celebrating and for her, like the celebration is so hollow compared to the loss that she is suffering, that she's been continually suffering and the guilt that she must feel over that particular loss. Right. Because mm. she she left her sons behind to go talk to her husband and say, OK, this is the information I found out and not knowing that that would be the last time that she would see them. You know what I mean? And not only that, but to hear about the way that they have been killed. And I'll put those in air quotes, right? Mm. Um, it's yeah. uh, That had to have been devastating. So not only do you lose your husband, you feel a loss of your, of your daughters, but they're still somewhat within reach. But then you hear news that your sons are gone and they were supposed to be in the safest place, which was home. Yeah. They are killed in their home. And not only that, but they are killed by, you hear that they're killed by somebody who was raised in your home. Um, mm. Yeah. So it's, it's multi-layered and just opposed to that is there's a celebration going on and, and George does a great job of describing the meal that's happening and the celebration that's happening and all of her internal thoughts that she's going through, you know, discussing about how Rick Rickon's smile and how he just wants to be like his big brothers or about brand climbing and the pride and the, the mixture of emotions she feels watching him climb and stuff and going through all of those things and then remembering her other children. And mm -hmm. so there's a huge amount of grief. And then there's Brienne, who's also grieving herself. And then he also mm. mentions how she's annoyed <laughs> by the way that Brienne is eating <laughs> and just wants to get away from her. But, you know, it's all of these emotions that are flashing and it, it is extremely depressing. Uh, and you brought up a great point there as we start the chapter on how 
you know, George is describing everything that's going on around her, every emotion that she's having, but he's not telling us what happened, right? Like, we fill in the blanks as we go, and it starts out with the Great Hall being shadowy and lonely and dark, and she thinks that it's a lonely place for two people to have supper. Catalan and Brienne are staring in their wine goblets, and the hall's empty. All the people of River Run, the soldiers, the servants, the small folk, all of them are celebrating out in the yard. Twenty casks are brought down from the cellars to celebrate Edmure's return. I guess that's brought up. You know, that's a problem of mine. I always mess those up. Uh, and <laughs> Directions. And of course, they're celebrating Rob's conquest of the crag. Catalan can't blame their celebrations. They do not know. And if they did, why should they care? They never knew my sons. Never watched Bran climb with their hearts in their throat. Pride and terror so mingled they seemed as one, never heard him laugh, never smiled to see Rickon so fiercely trying to be like his older brothers. Yeah, you can really see in these lines as we start to unravel why Catelyn's on her own, um, what Monero was saying about, you know, how, like, her grief in this chapter and also something that Monero was saying about how it's in the middle of, like, a party, right? I think that that kind of makes it feel even lonelier, right? When you feel so alone in uh, what you're feeling and no one else knows. And later in this chapter, Catelyn's going to bring up the deaths of Rickard Karstark's sons in her conversation with Jamie. But again, in, in regards to that loneliness, Cat's grief is very focused on what she herself is feeling, right? Whereas last chapter... Um, in some of the previous chapters, she's been kind of projecting and wondering. Like last chapter, she was wondering, I wonder if John's mother ever prayed for him. The answer is no, because she's dead. Um, and in Jeez. other previous chapters, whether Cersei ever worries for her own children as Catelyn does. But, you know, as Catelyn loses her own children after having already lost her husband, Ned, uh, she becomes much more focused on her own pain as opposed to wondering, you know, and, and empathizing with other people, right? Because there's none of her ever really thinking about or wondering, like, I wonder if Rickard Karstark, who just lost his two sons, which I know about, feels the same sort of, like, lonely grief and then the anger, right, that she's feeling and how she wants vengeance. And clearly Rickard Karstark does too, because that yeah. pans out in a few chapters. Yeah. <laughs> You know, like when his sons died, but at the same time, everyone else, like same with her right now, they were all super jazzed. They're like, we did it. Great job, team. We caught the Kingslayer. But like, at what cost to him? And also at what cost to all the other soldiers and their families, right? It's an empathy she never extends to all of the small folk who are fighting in this war, what, for her family. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, Rickard dies yeah. after he lost his two sons for his betrayal. And she frees the Lannister, and she doesn't get really that in trouble. I mean, she yeah. didn't have much to lose, but it is kind of unfair for her not to extend that empathy down the line a little bit. The trickle-down empathy effect, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a myth. Trickle-down <laughs> empathomonomics. Empathomics. <laughs> it's your podcast now, Monero. It you is. can have it. I don't want it. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, this is a food podcast also, so we're gonna, of course, talk about Catelyn's meal, her, like, sad meal, <laughs> which is not, like, a sad, you know, it's actually a pretty good-sounding meal, right? She stares at her food. It's trout wrapped in bacon, a salad of greens, and also red fennel, which I thought was interesting. I was like, I want that ingredient. Um, <laughs> also sweetgrass. I don't know what the fuck is sweetgrass. Peas and onions, and I'm like, meh on peas and hot bread. And I'm just like, why have I not thought to do a bacon-wrapped trout? It seems like very 
easy to have thought of, and for some reason I've not done that yet, so. It does sound really good, but, and I, I, this might be being far too serious, but it felt like a metaphor when Hmm. I read it. A trout, right, okay, I mean, the toys, a trout, wrapped in bacon, and if anything, like, bacon is, it resembles money, you know, and financial, fiscal security, so it's almost like the fancy trout are wrapped in chains of like the trappings of power. Mm. You're the fancy trout at a fancy dinner, but you're still wrapped and stuffed and stuck, right? And it kind of is her. She's the fancy trout being eaten alive here. Yep. You know? Yeah. I don't know. It felt like a metaphor this time. Maybe I'm hungry, but it felt like a metaphor. <laughs> is there anything about her? Is there anything in the metaphor then about her eating a trout? You know, that cannibalization? You have Joffrey later saying that the fat trout from the wedding that they caught a fat trout. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 And also from the Red Wedding, how they they threw her off mm. naked. They threw her. After, she had been dead for what, a couple of days before. Three days. Yeah, they threw yeah. her body out into the river in a mocking sense of, of how, you know, they actually lay their, you know, tullies are mm-hmm. made to rest, which is they are pushed out, I guess, to, to the sea. And then uh, cremated. But then again, she, you know, Arya finds her through uh, Nymeria. So. Yeah. That's yeah. a great point. I-, I feel like food's really important in this book, personally. <laughs> personally. It is. It means something. And to be fair, I mean, it, there's so much to take from this scene, just from them eating, right? Because you have Brienne eating like it's a chore. And something you had said, Monero, that Brienne, you know also is kind of in grieving as well. She's at a different yeah. stage of the grieving process, right? Yeah. And her wounds aren't being reopened necessarily. Right. She's kind of looking for a purpose, which is a big part of her in this chapter that she's like, all right, I'll step up, Lady Tully, Lady Stark. Uh, but she's eating methodically here. So I feel like she, Catalan doesn't even want food. She's like, this is all so disgusting. I can't even think of eating ever again or breathing ever again or doing anything ever again. Uh, and Brienne is past that a little. She is still eating, but right now it's a chore. She's not eating for pleasure. She's not eating for joy, so she's still grieving. She definitely is still grieving. And this is just brilliantly stitched together, all of it. Even the way that, like I said, we're getting this news. We have the Theon chapter a few chapters ago that tells us, you know, Bran and Rickon aren't really dead. We know they're not dead. We know Theon's kind of a chicken ass. (laughs) So... She doesn't know this, and that's supposed to color that for us, that now we're like, oh shit, she heard about them, but that doesn't mean that they're actually dead, so we're left to wonder until the next chapter. And the very next chapter is a Theon chapter, and it opens with Theon having a nightmare of being chased by wolves. And I wanted to highlight the language. Eliana will definitely appreciate this, but the language is mercy, he sobbed. From behind came a shuddering howl that curdled his blood. Mercy, mercy. When he glanced Mm -hmm. back over his shoulder, he saw them coming. Great wolves, the size of horses with the heads of small children. Oh, mercy, mercy. Blood dripped from their mouths, black as pitch, burning holes in the snow where it fell. Uh... It just like flows so well from this Catalan chapter into that. Mm. That's the genius of George. It's like a continuation, right? But then, you know, that's his, where you have one person who is grieving a loss and, and, and trying to process that loss. You have another person who is riddled with guilt and is being, is literally being chased by the ghost of those he, he should have protected 
and didn't. Yeah, yeah. great point. And also, um, I'm thinking of like the what horse-sized duck or whatever question here. They're wolf, wolves, ho- size of horses, which sounds like a bad deal. Um, <laughs> sounds like some grown-ass wolves. Feels like some yeah. stuff that's gonna come back in Tiwow. Uh, Maybe yeah. not for Theon necessarily, but coming back. Uh, for sure. Or I hope so. I take no joy in mead nor meat, and song and laughter have become suspicious strangers to me. I am a creature of grief and dust and bitter longings. There is an empty place within me where my heart once was. The sound of the other woman's eating had become intolerable to her. <sighs> As Monero said earlier, yeah, Catelyn's now just like, I can't, I can't even stand the sound of Brienne eating. And I'm like, damn, Brienne's just like living all right she's just there right next to you but that that really just goes to show how deep Catelyn's grief is and you know to try and make an excuse of it because she doesn't want to take it all out on Brienne which again Brienne does not deserve she releases Brienne to join the revels but Brienne actually doesn't want to go she's like this is not the outcome I hoped for uh she's she's explaining she's not made for them and she says she will go if Catelyn commands it and then real Catelyn realizes, oh, wait, no, I pushed too hard. Brienne actually really doesn't want to go and said that she only hoped to give Brienne better company than herself. It's great that she was very conscious of that, at least. You know, most people, when they're grieving, they don't really give a, you know, they don't care about anybody else's feelings but their own. But at least she's like, oh, she's still aware. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there's something really strong, and we've been talking a lot about how Catelyn and Cersei are so distinctly different in the protection of their children and in how they see their children and how they view their children. And I believe we talked about this a while ago with laughter being poisoned to fear in Catelyn's interiority. And I think it's so interesting that right now in this Blackwater kind of era of the book, as we're about to go straight into the Blackwater you have the line from Cersei in that maiden blood, the the moon blood chapter with Sansa saying, love is poison, a sweet poison, mm. yes, but it will kill you all the same. And from Catelyn, who used to think that, you know, laughter could be good in court and could be helpful to grow the bonds and for, you know, uh, example, the great John, you know, uh, being loyal to Rob and Rob kind of subduing him a little bit down from his not so humble attitude sometimes. Uh, how that was a good thing for Rob's campaign, but now here she is saying, song and laughter have become suspicious strangers to me. She's a changing woman. She's a woman in a constant state of change, and she's no longer the same woman from the start of the series, right? She's mm-hmm. really hurt. Absolutely. The woman at the start of the series was, you know, she was very confident, right? She Hopeful. felt that she knew what to do, how to run a household, and all the, all these things. Now she's like, I don't know what to even do in my own life. <laughs> everything's a fucking lie (laughs) (laughs) yeah but she still holds on to that she has to fulfill her duty right she has Mm, to like she still is holding on to that she has a duty that she has to fulfill despite everything else that's going on around her and also in another sense that she kind of twists what her duty truly is to kind of Mm. um, fit whatever narrative she now has because right now her narrative is I have to save the ones that I have left and I have to do whatever I have to do in order to do that. And so Mm -hmm. that is now what her duty is. Her duty is no longer to whatever cause they had set out for. I think she mentions that. I think it was right before um, Rob is making where she talks about how when they left, they left for the purpose of going to rescuing Ned. But now that Ned is dead, 
she can't think about who's dead. She has to think about the living. And so she still has her daughters that are still in King's Landing and she wants them back. She wants to go home. She wants to grieve for her husband. She wants to have her children around her. She doesn't want to lose anything else, anyone else. And I think at the Mm -hmm. backdrop of that, you know, she takes a lot, you know, she carries a lot of guilt because of the actions that she took by kidnapping Tyrion. In her mind, she kind of set this whole thing off and it just spiraled way out of control. Yeah, she really takes the blame on herself for all of that. And I think, you know, as, as we've discussed, maybe that's a way to feel more control over the situation. But something that kind of is in the background of this chapter that pops up, but isn't like really, it's, it's sprinkled in is it's not really like her fault in some ways. It was it was Littlefinger pulling the strings. But how could she know? Right. How could any of us know? None of us knew until later. Yeah, there was nothing creepy about that man the moment he entered on the page with his minty <laughs> weird breath with his face over Sansa's shoulder. Yeah. I mean, George gave him like a villain goatee and I don't know what he wanted us to think like about mm. that. Like you don't give someone a villain goatee and not I mean, actually I guess you could. That that's that's what he should have done to subvert the tropes. Yes. Anyway, in the awkward silence, Catelyn tells Brienne the raven that they received this morning, which no one knew about except for her and Maester Vyman. And she had actually meant to keep it a secret until... Well, actually, she doesn't know until when she meant to keep it a secret. She had just thought that maybe, maybe just not speaking it aloud would somehow make it not true. Mm. But unfortunately, it was true. She tells Ish. Brienne that... Uh, yeah, that's true. It, that's true. <laughs> it was true in her mind, but it's not true in our minds. You know, the Chad the Chad readers, alright? We're not in this story, alright? <laughs> We're not. We have secrets. We know the secrets. We do know the secrets. The ancient Jedi texts. Oh my god. <laughs> so, Catelyn tells Brienne these lies that Winterfell has fallen. Actually, no, this is true. Winterfell has fallen to Theon Greyjoy. That is true. The lie is about mounting Bran and Rickon's heads on the walls. They mounted other kids' heads on the walls. Not actually much better, but... Mm. Theon just... That's a whole nother story. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same story, Monero. It is not a whole other story. Monero, ten minutes ago. I love all characters equally because they all make up the story of ice and fire that I'm singing. Monero, right now, fuck Vion. Fuck that kid. I, you know, (laughs) he is, yeah, he is a character that, you know, I have to say, brilliantly done. I agree. I do think he's brilliantly done. You have gone through so many emotions reading. Reading his chapters for me is like reading like a Monty Python adventure (laughs) for me. Yakety Sax is just going off in the background. He's like he's like Yosemite Sam. (laughs) That's what it feels like reading his chapters. I'm like, is this dude is wow? (laughs) Daddy issues much. That is actually what his class chapters were like. And you're like, all right, okay. Rico um, Suave out here. Yeah, for sure. He thinks, but he thinks he is very suave, doesn't he? He does. Yeah. And he, he ends up actually, and you know, interestingly, Kat never really thinks about this, as far as I can tell. She's never like, you know, interestingly, Theon did all the things that I thought John was going to do. Mm. <laughs> well, that's because Theon did all the things she thought Theon was going to do, too. 
That's also true. <laughs> that is <laughs> she true. Did, that is true. She was like, maybe I was right about everyone, but she's she's not, anyways. Just but, um, some people. Well, with John, I think she did a lot a lot of projecting. If uh-huh. I'm honest, yeah. for just a quick second. She did a lot of projecting when it came to John because John was just a constant reminder of of Ned's supposed infidelity. And the fact that, you know, every time she looked at John, she saw a little Ned. It was like, you know, yeah. reliving that infidelity every single day. Of course, we we all know that's not John's fault. And we all know that it's a little bit, you know, much. But from a woman's perspective, we normally wouldn't want to raise our husband's bastards <laughs> or have them around, you know, Yes, you can go take the kids to go play with them. You know, you go have daddy time. But I don't want to be a mom to your bastard kid. You know, mm-hmm. um, I won't say that there aren't any women, but I know that as a human being, there is a level of hurt. And you're not going to take it out on the person who actually committed the act because, you know, mm, dick whipped. But you're going to take it out on the person who is least able to lash out at you right who's probably just going to take it so john was just an easy victim for her to project what she was really feeling about what she assumed to be ned's betrayal but she couldn't take it out on ned because the minute when she tried to bring it up he was like shut it down city (laughs) yeah that's true i mean that's the thing is like he's like she didn't even have a choice you know like she wasn't even asked hey catalan would you raise my bastard kid it was just like nope yeah. you're gonna no questions asked so i think that is also part of it obviously he was pretty closed off because of the whole trauma shindig uh, yeah. <sighs> it's kind of a bummer he didn't trust her enough to tell her the truth either so or well, i don't know yeah. if it was a yeah. lack of trust or because he was um trying to honor his sister i don't know i guess it could go either way all of the broken promises right that he mm-hmm. dreamed about that he had those fever dreams about yeah one of the many <laughs> Absolutely. And th- and that's another manifestation, right, of the powerlessness that Catelyn feels. That's, that's an earlier powerlessness that she feels, right? She has no, no way to change this situation, this family situation that she's in. And that powerlessness just keeps more and more things spiral out of her control, especially with the loss of her sons, right? After the loss of her husband, so many things start happening. And I think... Her withholding that information and not speaking it aloud is, again, one small way that she tries to gain control over the situation once more, right? Because she she feels terrible when she finally says it aloud. She says, I've said it, God's forgive me. I've said it and made it true. That idea of, like, made it true by speaking it aloud is, it, it's one, withholding that information from others is just one semblance of a way she can shape her world and her reality by not making anyone else acknowledge it yet. Mm. But unfortunately, the world keeps going without her, and she has to she has to say it aloud. And I, I love this scene where she finally has to admit it, and you just really get to see how that grief is transforming Catelyn. Um, and I just think it's a very it's a very real and raw feeling that it it's just very relatable that idea. Yeah, I mean, part of me remembers when my mom read The Secret, and she was like, "You got to read The Secret, Chloe. It's going to change your life." But <laughs> What, Part are, of me. what is the secret? Oh my god, the secret? It's like the self-manifestation, self-help book about, you know, like, it, it goes on and on, but it's basically just about manifesting your secret. 
your your secret, you know, your power, your truth. It was pretty oh, big okay. on Dr. Phil or some shit, I'm pretty <laughs> sure. And like the aughts. Oh, it, it, it's an aughts kind of uh, book. I remember like my mom had a friend that bought her the book and then like she bought a book for someone else and it was a whole thing, you know, because you're passing <laughs> on the power to your friends to self-manifest their <laughs> dreams. Uh, but this is to, to actually be less facetious because you know that'll ever happen um (laughs) this is interesting because it again gives her that cassandra that very Mm. very dark goddess greek tragedy vibe that everything she thinks and says comes true it's just like what we were saying with Tyrion that she took a lot of that blame for Tyrion and thought wow it's the anti-daenerys right daenerys right now is like my dreams come true i manifest my dreams and they grow into dragons and catalan's like i manifest my dreams and they're nightmares they're fucking living nightmares yeah. uh, everybody's having dragon dreams yeah that's true yeah and i don't know something that cat doesn't really notice from all of this from the semantics of the letter because how could she she's again drowning in her grief and all of her judgment is also clouded with that devastating grief to put that out there but this letter from Winterfell that comes might actually be the reason Roose joins up with Team Lannister. Mm. Something that really stands out is now not only does she not have any kids, basically, uh, they're all pretty much gone or severed from her, her grasp, whether they're kings, whether they're hostages, whether they're dead, whether they're lost. But Winterfell's gone too. And that's what the fight was for. Like, you guys don't even have Winterfell now. That's really bad. Yeah. That's... That's devastating because now it's like, what are we fighting for? We don't have Ned. We don't have the girls. We don't have Bran or Rickon. We don't have Winterfell. Awful. And this letter from Winterfell, you know, Stephen Adwell over at Race for the Iron Throne talked about this in his Catalan 7 essay. And the emotional significance, obviously, of what Roderick writes in this letter is one thing. Obviously devastating. But the timing is really important because Roose Bolton might have like Ramsay acting on his own initiative is fine here. But being informed and news traveling can travel fast enough to the twins from River Run from this that Roos decides to go on and join Team Lannister for the Red Wedding. Uh, and as he just settled into Harrenhal, and as Arya is just kind of sitting there like, wait a second, I don't understand. If you're Northmen that are here, why are you making all these plans? This doesn't sound like my brother's faction. Um, I mean, if Roos knew at point A that the boys are dead... And Winterfell's only heir is now south, warring in the south, and B, that Winterfell was weak and possibly that his own bastard son took it, or the Iron Men, which, as we see, aren't that, uh, aren't as frightening in the north after a year. <sighs> without an ability to, like, know, without insurance, Roose wouldn't strike, right? So this does say that this is probably one of the, one of those daggers in the back there. This is probably where Roose heard about it and thought, all right, well, I'm in Harrenhal. Jamie's going to swing by with Brienne any day now, and uh, we'll shake on it. That begs the question, how much of Ramsay's activities was Roos actually following? Because Roos had the conversation with Aziz and Skad when we were doing the Martells, and I mentioned that these there's this group of men, they're all like the same, like Walder Frey, Tywin, they're the kind of guys that kind of play both fences, mm-hmm. right? They have one foot in, one foot out, and trying to see which way the wind is blowing so that they can be on the winning side. I'm sure Ramsey wouldn't have been running amok 
and Roos not know it. And I guess he was just waiting to see what fruit it would bear so that he could Mm -hmm. be all in. Because just as quickly as Ramsey was able to, you know, tip the scales in that way, it could have gone either way. You know what I mean? It could have gone a different way. Like if they had never freedom from the jail Mm. or what if they had freedom from the jail and they killed him? It could have gone so many different ways. And so Roos strikes me as the kind of guy who's no different than Walter Frey and Tywin in that they're just, you know, trying to see which way the wind is going to blow so that they can make sure that they're on the right side of it. So they're not, you know, catching it. They're not downwind. And so it just so happened, I would agree that it just so happened that it all played out well, that his son was able to capture Winterfell or burn it. And so that gave him enough confidence to say, okay, yeah, I can go ahead and collude with these other old dudes and take a piece for myself so that I can bury the hatchet on this old grudge that, you know, my family has had with the Starks. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because you were talking about the timing and I guess... As brought up last chapter, Catelyn and Roose, I mean, Roose might think that Ramsay's dead at this time, right? Until Ramsay figures out, like, as you said, gets himself out of prison um, by manipulating Theon. Uh, I think of maybe the Bolton forces, maybe Roose had some some inklings to some extent, because, I mean, he contributes, they contribute forces, right? Yep. So. And he doesn't really lose any men. He, I mean, like, he his forces are still intact. Like, I think he traveled yeah. with, if I, if memory serves, I think he traveled with, like, maybe 5,000 men, and his his forces are still intact. Yeah, they are very, very much so. Very healthy, which is suspicious in its own right. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But, so, Brienne joins Catelyn in her grieving, with tears in her eyes, and reaches across the table for her, but stops short of touching her, because she's like, I don't actually know if we're, like, that kind of friends right now <laughs> right sometimes people come in and i'm like oh we're hugging now i'm like i didn't know we were hugging friends but um so anyways brienne apologizes in sympathy right saying her sons are with the gods now but catelyn sharply asks are they what god would let this happen Rickon was only a baby how could he deserve such a death and bran when i left the north he had not opened his eyes since his fall i had to go before he woke now I can never return to him or hear him laugh again. Uh, Ugh, such loss. It's so awful. And she reaches out and she it shows Brienne her scarred palm and fingers. And she thinks about Summer defending her and Bran. And she thinks Theon must have killed the wolves, too. She was certain they'd be safe as long as they had their wolves, like Rob. But now, just like her daughters, their wolves must be gone. She speaks of Sansa and Arya to Brienne then. Sansa was a lady at three always so courteous and eager to please. She loved nothing so well as tales of knightly valor. Men would say she had my look, but she'll grow into a woman far more beautiful than I ever was. You can see that. I often sent away her maid so I could brush her hair myself. She had auburn hair, lighter than mine, so thick and soft. The red in it would catch the light of the torches and shine like copper. And Arya, well... Ned's visitors would oft mistake her for a stable boy if they rode into the yard unannounced. Arya was a trial, it must be said. Half a boy, half a wolf pup. Forbid her anything and it became her heart's desire. She had Ned's long face and brown hair that always looked as though a bird had been nesting in it. 
I despaired of ever making a lady of her. She collected scabs as other girls collect dolls and would say anything that came into her head. I think she must be dead, too. <laughs> Do you just want to stab me a little? Just a little? Yeah. yeah. Just take me out? The good news. The good news is all these people are alive. I know. I but know. I know. That's, that's, what's, that, that's, that's what's so sad, right? Because yeah. we as the readers, we know that he's yeah. not dead. And this kind of triggers the memory of, I remember Arya um, saying that, if she could just see her mother again, that she would apologize and that she would try so hard to be a lady. Um, if she could just, you know, if she were to ever come across her mom again. And it's just, you're reading all of these characters and all of their different thoughts start to converge, right? Because now they're kind of realizing what's important and what's not important. Mm -hmm. When I read that from Catelyn, I, I thought about, there must be a level of not only grief, but guilt, right? Because in the beginning, yeah. she was just like, oh, I, I want our daughter to marry a king and so that she could have our, her sons would rule the seven kingdoms, right? Her son had aspirations of being in the king's guard. Like all of the things, and I guess in, I guess in that medieval time, those, those are the kind of things that I guess mothers aspire for their kids, right? Especially women of mm -hmm. nobility. Having your daughter becoming a queen and having one of your sons serve at one of the highest honors of being a Kingsguard. Yes, you have a daughter that's more of a tomboy, but you kind of figured that you can work on her. And you have a son and, you know, you have your oldest son who's going to be the heir who will more than likely take over from his father as the Lord Paramount. So you have all of these dreams and aspirations and it takes one family coming over to visit to just like throw it all to ash. And yeah. you think about, okay, well, what role did I play in that too? And so it was just so sad. And I thought about Arya saying how she she would tell her mother she was sorry. She would ask her mother's forgiveness and that she would be a lady and she would... There's nothing to forgive, Arya, baby girl. Come home. <laughs> it's going to suck when she has to kill her mom. Mm. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? Sorry, did I say that? Uh, well, you know, that, that, may be, that may be eminent. And I think that would be like... Mm, full circle would be yeah. hurtful hurtful yeah. is what it would be can't wait to read it in the winds of winter lady merciless getting mercy from her own daughter the gift of mercy there you go the yep she'd mercy. be giving the gift of mercy <laughs> like i pointed out with theon's next chapter right that it's what does it start with mercy 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 yeah and i mean i think there's something there right you're talking about the guilt guilt and that catelyn probably feels of I mean, she's their mother, right? She probably feels, as you were saying, she feels maybe she had a hand pushing them in these directions and wonders if she didn't do her job of protecting them. But as you read these, it kind of like puts into perspective of like, did it matter that much? And, and I think she's seeing that perspective. She's like, oh, I just miss my baby girl. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, you remember when Ned made the decision that he was going to go ahead and, and listen to her and Lewin, yeah. Mr. Lewin, and said, okay, I'm going to go. The way that her reaction was, was she thought she was going to be able to go too. And then when he says, no, you're going to stay here because you're going to have to take, you know, you're going to have to guide Rob um, in taking over as the Lord of Winterfell. And I'm going to take both the girls and Bran at the time. Her reaction was like, no, that's not the. That's not how it was supposed to go. No, I was supposed yeah. to. 
I'm supposed to be with you. Uh, we're all supposed to go. No, Ned was like through so much cold water on that. Yeah. And she even tried to stop the ball from rolling again, right? One more time when Ned was like, I'm still going to go after my son was injured. And she's like, nah, everything's different now. We should just stay yes. here. And <laughs> I mean, I'm, yeah, they should have just all stayed home. Everyone should stay home. That's what I do, and I'm great. <laughs> I'm know, fucking awesome from home. You no, know, when he said that, it was very ominous, right? When he said that, you know, this is where he belongs. Everybody who's... His brother went south and died. His father went south and died. It felt very ominous that if he were to leave, he would never come back. And, you know, Lewin is like, yo, that was a long time ago. That was a different <laughs> king. You know, those things. Lewin's like, sounds fake. Um, and I'm like, listen you should have listened to your gut but there she was like yeah you need to go like and then she starts using the guilt trip thing don't you want to find out who killed john aaron don't you want to be there for your bro don't you want to be there for him do you want to leave him with those pit of vipers don't you just want to be there for him like she's goading him and guilting him into taking this position when he obviously didn't want to go and so now now he's dead and now your sons are are dead according in, in your mind and your daughters are just like you know quote unquote maybe prisoners or you assume that one is dead and it's like ah, uh, maybe i should have just kept my big mouth shut yeah, and I mean, she regrets it, right? Because again, in the next chapter, after Bran's fall, she's begging and like weeping and crying for Ned, don't go anymore, don't go, things are different. The moment that harm comes to the family, right? Because that's what she's so concerned about, what harm towards the family. She says, don't go. But then Jamie, as he points out later on in this chapter, Ned goes for Robert. Ned's like, Jamie points out, he's like, Ned was never unfaithful to Robert, was he? He loved that man, maybe more That's than he hurts. loved you. I know, and I, I don't think Jamie's wrong. I think Jamie's right. Unfortunately. But after hearing about Catelyn's family, you know, I think Brienne's also kind of like, what did I get myself into? She's like, I said the wrong thing. This is not how I thought this conversation was going to go. Until, you know, Kat just keeps going, and I think Brienne realizes, oh... This isn't about me. All right, I see. I didn't say anything wrong. She's just sad. Because there's this line where I think it's interesting that Kat says of Sansa growing more beautiful. She says to Brienne, she's like, you can see that. And I'm like, no, Brienne can't. Brienne has literally never met her. It's actually a big problem when we get to the fourth book. (laughs) When she's trying to find her. It's in fact a big plot point uh, that Brienne cannot see that about Sansa. But, you know, as you were saying earlier, Benero, it's very bitterly ironic because everyone's kind of like, they're alive, right? So Catelyn's grief is like this huge irony, but you know, she's trying to just wring out their lives with their memory, and she she feels like a fist is squeezing her chest, and she tells Brienne that she wants them all dead. Not not her children, all the people who hurt her family. Them. <laughs> and by that she means Theon, Jamie, Cersei, you know, the imp, every single one of them. Tyrion probably shouldn't be on that list at this time, but whatever. <laughs> he's a Lannister by default, so yeah, he's gotta yeah. go. He's gotta go. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Brienne kind of tries to talk her down a little in her craziness. <laughs> She's like, maybe Cersei will feel empathy, you know, like for her own children and take pity on you. And Catelyn's oh. like, mm, that's very sweet. There's a sweet innocence about you. Bless your heart. <laughs> but Cersei would never send Sansa and Arya back. Rob will have to avenge his brothers. It's like a never-ending cycle, right? Yeah. And that's a very huge theme in this in this series, 
theme of vengeance, like everybody's avenging someone or something. It's all about I'm taking vengeance because of my pride. I'm taking vengeance because mm-hmm. of of you you killed my my son. I'm taking vengeance because you took my land. It's like vengeance upon vengeance. It's like this never ending cycle. You hit me, I'll hit you back. You hit me, I'll hit you back. Nothing ever truly gets resolved. And while all of this is happening, White Walkers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it's very much like Alaria asks, she's like, when does it all end? And that was actually Catelyn at the beginning of all this. She's like, when does it all end? And now she's like, fuck that. I want vengeance. <laughs> all right. And, and it kind of echoes how her daughter is feeling right now, right? Because Sansa is also like, my brother's going to come and kill you all, but only in her head. She can't say it aloud because she's surrounded by, you know, people who have power over her own life. And I, I just feel bad for Rob. There's like a lot of pressure on him, right? Obviously, the pain that like Catelyn feels is really heavy, but like for Rob, there's a lot going on too. That was like his BFF who just betrayed him and like allegedly killed his younger brothers, right? And he he's like, how can I trust any of my expertise? I just trusted the wrong people. Now he's got to lead everyone to get vengeance for like the harm that's been caused to his family, and also has to go save his sisters somehow. And his his like mother's also putting all of this on him too. Every everyone's putting things on Rob, and um, you know, in regards to the empathy, Brienne being like, oh, maybe Cersei will feel bad for your daughters and. Free them. I'm like, no, what Cersei's gonna do is kind of like what Catelyn's doing to you right now. Just lecturing. Gaslight, gatekeep, girl boss. Yeah. Uh, The Blackwater edition. Uh, Yeah. Same difference. That was the term that we used to say in the aughts. Same difference. That was what Uh, we used to say. Because it's, I get it, because it's an oxymoron. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's. There is, like, those thoughts that Sansa has for Rob. Like, it's interesting, the projecting of of Rob saving them all. You know, that's a lot to put on this 16-year-old's shoulders. Yeah. He can't, he doesn't even have his driver's license yet. (laughs) I have bad news for you. He doesn't get one before he dies. Um, Yeah, but at least he got laid. So mm, he, he did get that. laid. That's that's true. That is that's important. Did I get my driver's license before I got laid? Anyways. <laughs> Ice can kill as dead as fire. Ice was Ned's great sword. Valyrian steel marked with the ripples of a thousand foldings. So sharp I feared to touch it. Rob's blade is dull as a cudgel compared to Ice. It will not be easy for him to get Theon's head off, I fear. The Starks do not use headsmen. Ned always said that the man who passes the sentence should swing the blade, though he never took any joy in the duty. But I would. Oh yes, I'm sure Don't she worry. would. I think I think she would do a couple of like hacking, like oh sorry I missed. Oh, oh I'm, I'm I'm sorry yeah. I missed. Quick to make fun of Edmir and Rob, but. <laughs> uh. I definitely feel, again, that feels pretty significant for possible Arya X Stoneheart meeting there of the Stark swinging the sword, giving the sentence, swinging the sword, uh, of course, and not taking joy in that duty. With respect to um, Sansa and Pierre, or Littlefinger, or whatever you want to call him. <laughs> Littlefinger sounds such, like a, <laughs> sounds like such a naughty name to give somebody, but whatever. <laughs> He's the naughty. <laughs> People die because of him. That's naughty. <laughs> what was it? Miranda? She goes, Have you played with his little finger? Sansa's like, What? <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, so 
you know, if we if we're to like take into account the dream that the ghost of High Heart has about the Titan's head on a castle mm. or whatever. I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. she has a vision. And so um can we talk about show spoilers? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Yeah, I mean the books are based on the show, so anything that we say <laughs> is okay. from let's, let's just say they're loosely based on the show. Loosely. <laughs> loosely. Yeah. Very loosely. For context, you know, the scene where Peter is sentenced by Sansa and Arya is the one that actually um, swings the the blade. I wonder if that's also gonna be the same scenario that all of them will come together and pronounce Sansa, who will be the de facto heir in, in Winterfell, will be the one to pronounce the sentence and Arya will come in and and swing the sword to take his head off. Hell yeah. You know what I mean? Dude, this is in front in front of in front yeah. of mommy dearest. I'm getting hornier by the moment, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna be honest with you. You can't say these things to me, Monero. <laughs> In front of Mommy Dearest, right before, you know, she allows Mommy Dearest to take her final rest. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if Catalan she yeah. doesn't know, I guess, that all of this is because of Littlefinger yet. I do think, like, so my vision for what I see going down, because we've kind of talked about it a bit throughout Catalan's POV, but I do think that Arya is going to come across her, and I do think that'll be as Arya goes home, because we know Arya's got to go to the Riverlands. She's got to get her dog, well, or say goodbye to her dog, we don't know. We don't know yet. Could be worse. Mm. Could be sad. Could <laughs> suck. God, that's worse than the death the of Catalan. Shit. Ugh. Oh my god. It's just like, how could you just say bye to your dog like that? Anyways. That is uh, actually terrible. It's. Uh, I'm just saying, like, we've all seen Marley and Me. We've all seen all the dog movies. They're all... That's what happens to the Unsullied. <sighs> mm. Yeah, that's true. It's hurtful. Man. It's awful. Yeah, killing a dog. It's just awful, but... Hopefully Arya doesn't have to do that. But I mean, I just think she's going to have to come to the Riverlands to see her pet dog at least. So, and Ed Sheeran. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's canon. That's... Yeah, I can't wait for George to adapt I'm glad. That. I'm glad that the show told us well, that that was going to oh, happen for us. And, and Gendry. Let's not forget Gendry. Yeah, mm, don't forget. That's true. Let's not forget Gendry. <laughs> so, Catelyn opens her hands and closes them again, staring at the scars, which is interesting because that's pretty parallel to Another person who will think about his hand that he cannot open and close himself very soon. Well, hmm. not yet, but soon. <laughs> Next book. She opens her hand, she closes them, and then she says that she sent him, the Kingslayer, wine. It served her well with Cleos. She thinks, I hope you're thirsty, Jamie. I hope your throat is dry and tight. Interesting I do have, language uh, there, Catelyn. Yeah, I know someone who's thirsty. Um... <laughs> It's been a hot second, you know? Uh, Game of Thrones was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. They didn't it's even sleep time. together when Ned like went to visit her in King's Landing. I know. What kind of, what kind and Littlefinger was being such a nice guy. He was yeah. trying to let him. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't even have a quickie. He's like, hey, you know, I got a spare room here. <laughs> I'm sure I yeah. could rustle something together for you guys. There's something very parallel in the Sansa chapter with Sandor, where they just came back from the roof together and... He, they talked about the Starks and their husband, right? Sandor says to her, no, it gives me joy to kill people. Wrinkle up your face all you like, but spare me this false piety. You were a High Lord's get. Don't tell me Lord Eddard Stark of Winterfell never killed a man. Sansa, of course, says that was his duty. He never liked it. And 
Sandor does not agree. He's like, yeah, we fucking love killing, dude. It's like part of our flesh. It's what we do. We love murder, man. And Sansa's like, I don't believe you. Uh, and that's kind of Catelyn here saying Ned never took joy in it, ever. Kind of corroborating. I mean, Ned's not like other boys, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, he's not the same. I would love yeah. to do a whole thing about Ned. It's like second sons, man. They get bad raps and they always mm. end up with the shorter end the stick and it seems like they die so <laughs> i think the only one that has escaped death so far is uh jamie lannister and, and his is imminent but most <laughs> of the second sons have like bit the dust in yeah. this in this story and ned is kind of has parallels to me to kevin lannister the only difference is he lost his brother a lot younger um, mm. And so he's had to step into a role. He really, he's always had this lingering doubt about, probably carried a little bit of guilt about having to be Lord of Winterfell by default. Mm -hmm. I was never supposed to be here. I was never supposed to marry this woman. I'm not really supposed to have all these kids. You know, this was supposed to be my brother. And I know, and I'm sure a part of him felt like, you know, Catelyn must have felt like she settled for him. And I think also in Catelyn's mind, she kind of makes mention that over time she grew to love him, which denotes to me that she didn't really have any feelings for him one way or the other. It was really the brother that she had feelings for him. But, you know, out of duty, she married Ned. That's what the times called for. Over time, she learned to to love him and be with him, even though he had a bastard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think she ended up happier with Ned than she. Well, except for the part where everyone dies. But if you ignore <laughs> that part, I think she was happier with Ned than she would have been with No, <laughs> if I you ignore if you ignore true. everything happening in this chapter and all of her grief, yes, for that brief moment in time. <laughs> well, and it goes right back to Barristan, right, with his you know, women don't want mud; they want they want fire. When it's like, actually, yeah, some woman could want mud. Maybe, like, you can grow love. Maybe love isn't just you fall in love and you chase a girl across a nation and then impregnate her and put her in a tower. You know, like, maybe that's not always love. Oop. Um, yeah. Maybe sometimes love takes two people and constant communication and sacrifice and compromise and a lot of pain just for a yeah. lot of the good stuff yeah maybe yeah and we see it clearly she very much loves ned right by yeah. the, all of the things happening in this chapter right and the other chapters of her story she asks brienne to come with her when the time is right at midnight she leaves the hall climbing to her father's solar and the people outside shout for house tully and it's brave young lord and catelyn's like what the fuck <laughs> inside she's like my father is not dead she wanted to shout down at them my sons are dead but my father lives damn you all and he is your lord still <laughs> but she doesn't she holds it in just probably for the best hoster is deep in his sleep when she arrives and maester vyman offers ketlin a sleeping draft to help her with her grief and she declines and says that her sons deserve better from her she tells him that he should just go join the celebration though and that she will sit with her father she holds his hand, thinking that she can't keep him here, and she has to let him go. She tells him she prays, but the gods don't answer, and kisses his hand. I loved this passage. I wanted to highlight this. This this whole entire passage was just really sad. It, I actually found myself very sad and thinking just like, oh, God, poor Catelyn. Now she has to let her father go. Uh, and yeah. it's just like, as we discussed in the beginning, when she had to let go of her daughters and that 
Bran was the one that she couldn't let go. She had let go of all of them in her heart, but not Bran. And now her father, you never, you don't think you have to, you know? And now here she is and she realizes he's barely holding on and she can't just keep keeping him here to listen to her talk to the wind. There's this bit, the skin was warm, blue veins branching like rivers beneath his pale, translucent skin. Outside, the greater rivers flowed, the red fork and the tumblestone, and they would flow forever, but not so the rivers in her father's hand. Too soon that current would grow still. It was just haunting, you know, thinking of those veins, and it almost reminds me a bit of Mr. Lannister as we get into him, uh, huh. that memory he has of Rhaegar when Rhaegar says, uh, we'll talk about this when I return. And later on, when Kevin says, you know, it does not do to, to speak of roads untaken. And those veins to me just read like roads that were taken, right? Uh, they Those blue veins in Hoster's hand remind me of the different past that Catelyn, her siblings, Admir and Liza, and even the Starks and the Stark siblings have taken already that brought them to where they are and that they will come to take even her, this very chapter, and of course, Brandon, who we'll talk about later. It was just a really beautiful representation of the story. Maybe think of just the storylines breaking off on his hand. Mm. Yeah. And I love how his body, right, is also, it's the rivers, it's the land that he's lived on and mm -hmm. ruled and protected. Yeah. It's but sad. I don't, I mean, fuck Hoster, but. <laughs> yeah. But it is sad. There's clearly a lot of grief here, right? Because your grandchildren, right? Her children aren't supposed to die before her dad. People don't expect that. You're, they don't expect that their kids are going to die before them. And I think right. that's part of the big tragedy of Catelyn's story. And it's clearly something George is interested in exploring. He does more in Fire and Blood. But for now, Cat tells him she dreamed of the time she had been lost riding back from Seaguard. Interesting. With Liza, when strange fog enveloped their party. They lost the road, and Liza started to cry, and the fog swallowed all. But Peter had been there to find them, showing that Peter Baelish is the hero of the whole story. Um, and now no one is there to find her. She has to find her own <laughs> way. Chloe's shaking her head like, Eliana, what the fuck? Why like, are you that's here? what you took from that motherfucking passage? <laughs> you, read, you read that paragraph, and that's the metaphor that you fucking absorbed? What the fuck's wrong with you? Little fingers, Azora, hi. Oh, <laughs> that's what it's saying. Oh my god. This is the second time I'm quitting the podcast today, but here we are. Maybe the third, if you count, you know, in my head all the time. No, I'm just kidding. Um... <sighs> No, truly, I read this and I was like, oh, that's a metaphor, huh, Catalan? Do you see it? Do you get it? Do you understand why you had that subconscious, subliminal dream coming to you? No, she doesn't, uh, because she's clouded once more by her grief. She can't take the time to put it all together of what could the Littlefinger stuff mean in this this event moment in my life? Mm. Even at the end, right, Jamie believes the rumor Catalan fucked Littlefinger, and he mentions it, and, and it's interesting because she's so buried in her grief and through the other trauma that he's just throwing at her that she doesn't even, like, think about it. She's like, oh, he's just a hateful asshole, and it's like, Girl, your answer is right there. Your answer's in front of you. There's your answer. Littlefinger is a piece of fuck. That's your answer. Absolutely. And I think, so what's interesting is, like, he's saying it because he's trying to get a rise out of her because that's, like, Jamie, he's a fucking troll. It's a Lannister thing. That's, yeah. like, what the Lannister <laughs> brothers love to do. They like to poke and troll. But, and to be fair to Littlefinger, right, like, I do think he does believe that he slept with Catelyn, right? Um, yep. You Kicks. know, like, but... He was the first time, right? He he lost his virginity by 
being sexually assaulted by Liza taking advantage of Peter's lack of sobriety, right? I think Catelyn doesn't catch it also because the first time it said Peter's name isn't brought up, she doesn't know this rumor. She has like no idea what the hell anyone is talking about. And this is just a rumor that's been going around King's Landing. And so I think it's so interesting that Jamie tries to say it each time to try and hurt Catelyn with it. And it doesn't, because he's also like digging at her honor, right? Because that's something that's important to her. It's important to the Tullys. It's important to the Starks. Um, and he thinks that he's trying to point out that none of us are that different, right? You also are dishonorable. You're not a maiden, just like me and my infidelities or Cersei's infidelities. Um, he's trying to say that the Starks are just hypocrites, but it all rolls off Catelyn because she's like, I have no idea what this man is saying. He's just crazy drunk. <laughs> um, because why Why would she? She'd be like, what, what the fuck is this? She's never heard it. Yeah. Um, anyway, so speaking of house words, not just the Tully's. We have this one, which, of course, I've, I've cited this passage before in previous episodes, but it's still good, so we're going to do it again. I keep remembering the stark words, winter's come, father, for me, for me. Rob must fight the Greyjoys now as well as the Lannisters, and for what? For a gold hat and an iron chair? Surely the land has bled enough. I want my girls back. I want Rob to lay down his sword and pick some homely daughter of Walder Frey to make him happy and give him sons. I want Bran and Rickon back. I want... Catelyn hung her head. I want... She said once more. And then her words were gone. Air horns, yeah. but also, damn, she really, like, threw in that dig about Walder Frey's daughters, like, during her, <laughs> like, sad time speech. I was like, damn, Catelyn rude. <laughs> Never misses. She never misses. And I mean, it's just so perfect because you have, in the face of her children's death, she wants all of that back and all of her home yes. back. But in the face of Cersei's children's death, when she cries, I want, as Jamie is thrusting within her and she yells, I want, I want, it's power that she wants. Yeah. Power. Power over their own lives. Yep. And to protect. I mean, their interests, Catelyn, it's her family. Yeah. That's kind of like a running theme with a lot of the women yeah. in this story, right? Because they live in a patriarchal society. And so we can look at her her opposite, which is Cersei Lannister, who also wants power because, you know, she's been used as a, as a pawn to advance House Lannister. Now, she did enjoy, you know, a lot of the perks that came with it because she became the queen but she also suffered physically under robert mm -hmm. and every time she gains a little bit of what you would call power somebody slides in to kind of take it away from her and so she used her cunning in order to be able mm -hmm. to do a power grab in order for her to be able to make to have power so that she can dictate her own destiny and not be at the will of her father's whims anymore or any other man's whim where she would be the mm -hmm. one to decide her own fate. And I think that's the same with a lot of these women. Like, you know, they live in, they live in a society where all the men are the ones making the decision. And Catelyn's no different, right? Because she wants this all to be over, but unfortunately she's, <laughs> she's actually at the mercy of her son's whim <laughs> because he yeah. has just been made king. And there's all these other men that are around her. She's the only woman in his council. And her voice is like drowned out by the needs and wants of all of these other men. 
So she's trying to carve out and get her own power. And she figures to use Jamie in order to do that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's so great that you brought up Cersei as a comparison because that's what Cersei's been doing a lot of this time, right? And she tries to do when Cersei re- when Jamie returns, using Jamie as a means to fulfill her desires and not just the sexual ones, even though that is part of the temptation in this chapter. <laughs> but like the just being able to do anything, just being able to manifest anything. Speaking of manifesting. <laughs> the secret. <laughs> the secret. The secret is we freed Jamie Lannister. <laughs> The candle goes off after a time, and then they're only lit by moonlight in the solar. She listens to his breathing, mixed with the sounds of Ryman singing the seasons of love below in the yard. Catelyn doesn't notice when the singing ends, but Brienne is at the door before long, and midnight has come. Midnight has come, father, she thought, and I must do my duty. She let go of his hand. And interestingly, the line that we get from Seasons of Love sounds a lot like Catelyn, because she's got red hair, like Autumn, but Catelyn's like, I'm not in Autumn anymore. I'm in the winter of my life. Um, girl, you're 32. Um, <laughs> but obviously she feels that way because of, again, her grief, right? Talking about that isolation. And what she does with it is she just lashes out. She just takes it out on everyone, including like a guard later. And... and- you know, internally she's lashing out. She's like, my dad's still alive. He's slipping away. And she has no one to depend upon here, right? You were talking about her being the lone woman on the council. She's just like alone here in general, right? She has no women companions other than Brienne. And she's like, I don't, I hardly know this girl. Like I got her. I like brought her with me after we witnessed like a supernatural murder, but I don't really know her. No. So yeah. it's been like a minute. Yeah. She is truly alone and, truly alone. The jailer is bent over a tankard and pigeon pie, drunk as hell, squinting at them, and Catelyn kind of puts, kind of uses her power here a little. Not great. She she performs some scary yeah. lady of the house threatening shit. He's like, basically he says to her, I need a permission slip from the lord of the house, Edmure Tully. And she's like, oh, do you want to go talk to the lord of the house, Hoster Tully, and explain why you're defying his daughter? His eldest daughter? So she sends him back to his booze, his ale, and Brienne keeps guard outside the cell. Catelyn opens a very heavy wood and iron door to step into the dark cell with nothing but the sound of the tumblestone. A pail of shit is overflowing in a corner and a shape is huddled in the other, a flagon of wine untouched in front of this shape. It's Jamie Lannister. Hooray, he's back. He greets Lady Stark, his wrists clanking in chains. Yes. Jamie Lannister had been allowed no razors since the night he was taken in the Whispering Wood, and a shaggy beard covered his face, once so like the Queen's. Glinting gold in the lamplight, the whiskers made him look like a some great yellow beast, magnificent even in chains. His unwashed hair fell to his shoulders in ropes and tangles. The clothes were rotting on his body. His face was pale and wasted, and even so... The power and the beauty of the man were still apparent. Draws wet. <laughs> they are. <laughs> She's like, this is weird. We are out of the depression and we are now into the thirst hour, everyone. <laughs> yes. Lay down your tarps. Depression into the sex dungeon. <laughs> oh yeah. It also reminds me of of the same thing that Brienne says, like. <laughs> 
when they're in the bathhouse, when he steps in, he's all grimy and nasty. <laughs> and, he, and she still says that he he looked like half a god. I'm like, what is How hot this? is this man? That like, like everyone's just like What is he's I, so I, gross, covered in shit, <laughs> but fuckable. <laughs> I'd still do him. <laughs> And Ugh. I want to know, what are they feeding him that he's shitting so much? Like, what is happening? It's a good question. You think or- he'd just have, like, diarrhea the whole time, in my opinion. I'm just saying. <laughs> like, he's probably got some runny shit in there. Ew. <laughs> Ugh. I'm guessing it's just, like, soft, because you got no- nothing real being fed to him, right? Like, It's just all fiber. They only give him fiber. <laughs> <laughs> Probiotics. <laughs> uh, right. They give him yogurt. <laughs> Catalan and Jamie start to banter back and forth, and his chains are bolted to the wall, so paint that picture. Jamie jokes that some cells under Casterly Rock would make this cell seem like a sunlit garden, and perhaps someday he'd show her them, because my favorite part is that their back and forth thing is they're just threatening each other lightly, so that's what makes it sexier or whatever. Mm. That's flirting, right? Yeah, that is. Yeah, I think foreplay. The foreplay. This is foreplay. Yeah. Yeah, this is foreplay. He's like, now that I've visited your sex dungeon, come visit ours. (laughs) Um, But so the exchange uh, comes out of, of course, you know, this part is is preceded by Jamie complaining about the quality of his cell, and Captain's like, yeah, well, you had a sick ass cell, right? It was really plush until you tried to escape. In great, <laughs> and Jamie pointedly and rightly so points out, well, a cell cell is still a cell, right? It's still imprisonment, and I I think that's really interesting that he said that because right now Catelyn's daughter is also in a gilded cage held by Jamie's family, and yet. This man might be her only hope to free her daughter from it. Yeah, but you know, I have to I have to say that Catelyn did have a point. Like you did have a plush cell, but maybe if you'd have just wrote it out, you still could have been living a little bit nicer instead of, you know, <laughs> literally rolling around in your own shit. So there's that. I would take that chance if I were Jamie. I mean like and his brother. It was his brother's idea. What are you gonna mm-hmm. do? Be like, nah, little bro, I'm not gonna run away. Take stupid chances, win stupid prizes. Listen, I would have only tried if I knew I had a 100% chance of succeeding. Mm. That would have been the only reason why I would have tried. If there would have been no way for me to succeed, I'm just going to take a chance. But then again, it is Jamie Lannister, so. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) He's very much fuck around and find out. Yeah, I mean, and he knew they wouldn't kill him. Like, because he knows that, as we're about to read, like, he's like, you don't have real power. Like... (laughs) Obviously, your son can't kill me. You yeah. need me. You need me. You need yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she needs him, all right. <laughs> and that's probably why, right? He can put on this face of bravado because if he was feeling cowed, he hid it well. And Catelyn warns him to keep a more courteous tongue in his mouth. <laughs> mm. He oh. returns the rhubarb, <laughs> asking if surely she was coming to take a widow's pleasure. <laughs> from him it tells her to step out of her gown and pour the wine and he's like and i'll see if i'm up to it i'm like jamie you've never fucked a woman that's not your sister (laughs) (laughs) he's gonna have a panic attack (laughs) jamie's all like i'm gonna throw my dick everywhere and i'm like no you're not you're gonna cry into your pillow come on jamie He couldn't even fuck that nice girl over at Harrenhal who wanted it, you know? Catelyn must have yeah. saw Catelyn must have saw that he was just playing games, like, yeah, dude, you're just talking. She called this talk. bluff. <laughs> She's like, I know you can't get it up. <laughs> <laughs> 
well. She warns him that her son will kill him for that one. Wondering if there was ever a man as beautiful or vile as him. Okay, cat, tune it down. He says they both know Rob wouldn't face him in single combat. And she adds, yeah, but you weren't exactly trying to play single combat when, you know, we were out on the battlefield. Besides, he is sadly mistaken if he takes Rob for a fool, she says. He says, did the old kings of winter hide behind their mother's skirts as well? Catelyn says he should speak now to save his own life, but Jamie doesn't fear death. And Catelyn's like, well, you should. Your crimes have now earned you a place of torment in the deepest of the seven hells. What gods are those, Lady Catelyn? The trees your husband prayed to? How well did they serve him when my sister took his head off? Jamie gave a chuckle. If there are gods, why is the world so full of pain and injustice? Because of men like you. There are no men like me. Only me. There is nothing here but arrogance and pride, and the empty courage of a madman. I'm wasting my breath with this one. If there ever was a spark of honor in him, it is long dead. She always mentions how beautiful he is. Yeah, she wants that cock. I mean, I think it's very clear here. It must be those curls yeah. that's like... <laughs> the golden Maybe curls. it is the curls. They must be uh, actually very long and curly by now. I wonder if he's got a curly beard. I'm not into it. I just don't... I've seen some crazy art so of dirty. this. I've seen some crazy art that literally has him looking like an 80-year-old man in this scene that someone made that I was like, what? That's not... That's I'm not sure right. He's not supposed that. to be yeah. sexy. He's supposed to be golden and filthy. Yeah, he's supposed to be filthy. dirty. Oh, dirty, dirty boy. That reminded me of Futurama. Actually, yeah, like a Futurama. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of Futurama things that can come up, I guess, in Catelyn's episodes. I think we brought up Snooze New recently. Snooze New. <laughs> um, you know... Part of uh, what what I love about this exchange, and that is so like on the nose, it's very grating of Jamie's retorts to Catelyn here about the injustice of the gods, is that it really pairs nicely with earlier in the chapter, right? Because he's questioning, well, do the gods even exist if like there's all this pain and injustice? And it echoes Catelyn telling Bria, and she's like, what gods? How can you say that my sons are with the gods? What gods would let this happen to them? And she's like, here, she's kind of taking like the side of like, there are gods, but before, you know. She, she's, all, she's all over the place uh, religiously today, for understandable reasons. It also echoes back to Stannis, right? Because he also mentions when he's having a conversation with Davos mm. about, you know, what gods would allow, you know, for his parents to be killed in front of him like that. You know what I mean? And that was mm. that moment that he abandoned the gods. And so you have a lot of people now that question their faith when all of these terrible things happen. But it's supposed to be the time when your your faith is supposed to be strengthened, right? Because your faith is now being tested. And now they uh. question whether or not the gods actually do even exist if they allow for bad things to happen, as if the gods are supposed to control what the humans do, right? The gods don't control what human people do. They are just a representation of a higher beings, but they don't meddle in the affairs of humans. Mm-hmm. Unless you're Zeus, so, and there's that. <laughs> <laughs> That's because Zeus is a petty bitch. God, he's so petty. He's like, oh no, the Titans are acting up again? Gotta plot my dick out, make sure everyone can see it. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that guy has some issues. 
<sighs> yeah, but yeah, that's a that's a great comparison to to Stannis, right? And what you were saying about the crisis of faith, because I think that that's such a big part, and especially as the story moves forward in what we're going to see with like Aaron Dampere, right, and probably with Melisandre one day. So, you know, I think that's a great call out of what causes people to lose faith. Well, Catelyn turns to leave, dismissing. Jamie being like, I know I won't get any answers from you, and he surprises her. After telling her the awful things her turnkey has been saying to him, he semi-apologizes for his crudeness, and then he promises her answers for a price, and that price is that they must answer each other's questions truthfully. Mm, yes. A little bit of truth or dare. <laughs> it is that mm. kind of high school party. It is literally never have I ever, basically. <laughs> yeah. Because we never get to the dares, you know? Yeah. That's just truth. <laughs> I dare you to, to rescue my daughters. Wait. <laughs> That's a dare? <laughs> that is actually a dare. Haha. <laughs> I that might, counts. unless. Uh... <laughs> He asks for the wine finally. He's like, fuck it, we're doing it live. Uh, And he declares the wine sour and vile, but he drinks it anyway. And he's like, I'm feeling charitable. You have the first question. Take the floor, Lady Stark. And she does not bury the lead. She goes, are you Joffrey's father? And after some pushing, he's like, yeah, I suppose all of Cersei's children are mine. And that language is so fantastic because he's never been allowed to think of them as his children like that, right? Like, so he's never even contemplated. it. He, he's never even been allowed to be their father. And this is the first time anyone's ever said, hey, are you their dad? And he can be honest, right? Like, he, the, the whole thing's about honesty, and he's never even had to think this. And he's like, yeah. Yeah, I suppose I'm, I'm all their dads. Hmm. But he had a lot of, I guess, over time, he had a lot of detachment from them Mm -hmm. as being Mm -hmm. his his kids right because i think it's in cersei's chapters we find out that she literally like put when he tried to bond with joffrey he Mm -hmm. she literally pushed him and like what the fuck are you doing he's not (laughs) supposed to be your son (laughs) get out and so he has this practice detachment of all of his children that he's had with his sister in that, yeah, they're my kids, but, you know, not really. I just wanted to, you know, bang my sister and these kids happen to be like a byproduct of that. But yeah, if you want to get technical, yes, technically, they're (laughs) my kids. And I think that's just, that's really pointed that he feels no connection to them, right? In a chapter where Catelyn is so, it's so focused on Catelyn's own connections, right? To her children. And it's something that comes up in Jamie's chapters later on. He's like, weird, I don't really feel like I want to avenge anyone over the death of, I guess, my son. Whereas Catelyn's like, yo, my sons are dead and I'm about to burn down everything. Pretty much. And the only so- time that he gets fatherly... <laughs> is with Tommen finally yeah. like he if you want to call it fatherly but he tells him just go away inside <laughs> this is the worst like i mean there are definitely dads that give that advice but it's that's what i did healthy. i turned out great i'm a dad of the year for that one <laughs> i'm dad of the year for that one <sighs> Well, then Catelyn skips his turn, right, in this uh, in this uh, 20 questions game, and says, so you admit to being your sister's lover? And he's like, 
I've always loved my sister. And he's like, also, you owe me two answers now. All right, I've been counting. And he asks if all of his kin are still alive. And she tells him Stafford was slain at Oxcross. And he's like, I don't give a fuck about Stafford, okay? <laughs> he's like, are my siblings or my father alive? She's like, all three live. Um, though inside, Catelyn's like, but not long if the gods are good. <laughs> I'm like, Catelyn, what has this conversation been about? It's about how the gods are not good. Okay, pay attention. Catch up. Pick one, girl. I, well, I guess, you know, Tywin does die soon, so the gods are maybe 50-50. He lets her ask her next question then. How did Bran fall? And he responds, I flung him from a window. <laughs> that wraps that one up. Yeah, yeah, she wants to gut him, right? She's, oh, I ought to murder this motherfucker. But she thinks of her girls, and then she accuses him of breaking his vows, of defending the weak and innocent. But he's like, listen, your son's a goddamn pervert. There's nothing innocent about that boy. He was definitely weak, but he was up in that window. He was gazing at me and Cersei spying on us. You should blame your gods for doing this to him. And she's like, LMAO, you literally just said you threw him out of a window. Like, you literally did that, Jamie, and you just admitted to it. So why would I blame the gods when you literally... And then Jamie responds, I seldom fling children from towers to improve their health. Yes, I meant for him to die. How could he call him a pervert when you're literally banging your sister? Like, mm, how much more perverse is that? <laughs> That's a great point. Like, it couldn't wait. <laughs> like, yes. like, I don't know. Well, they man. did like, wait. They, go, they sent yeah. Robert on a whole hunt. You know, it was a whole elaborate thing. Yeah, that's one that's second I mean, you're like you you are on somebody else's you're in somebody else's house like you couldn't keep it in your pants until you i guess got, that's part of the fun he's like oh they've got like an abandoned tower like you know, <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's go explore my tower's feeling abandoned cersei Oh my god, I bet he used that line on her too. Uh, probably, and then she probably uh, looked at him like he was beautiful and golden and vile. Ooh. Oh wait, that's Catelyn. Uh, yeah, well no, Cersei's like, just like me. <laughs> and then she's like, now I'm wet. Um, literally the episode of Broad City, when Alana gets the girl for the Oh my god, like it I'm is. I'm telling you, it's the same that's thing. Actually, that's actually, you're right. Yeah. You're right. So Catelyn asks, in a very roundabout way, if Jamie had sent the cat's paw... And Jamie's like, I mean, I talked about it, but I never actually pulled the trigger on it. And he says Catelyn and the maester and Eddard were always around, and the wolves, too. And he's like, I, I mean, I thought the kid was just going to die on his own, uh, to be honest. <laughs> Catelyn presents her hands, scarred, and she's like, if you lie to me, our session is at an end, which <laughs> makes it that much more like Fifty Shades of Catelyn. Mm. She asks him to swear he had no part in sending the assassin, and he swears on his honor as a Lannister, but that doesn't really mean much these days, so she kicks his shit bucket over. <laughs> that was kind of rude. That was so unnecessary, and now like, now he's gotta like live with all of his shit. I mean, I guess it was already there, but anyways, it gets close to him. And <laughs> the interactions here kind of make me think of uh, Jamie as sort of a Sander Clegane-like character, right? In terms of... Uh, you know, Catelyn already knows that the world is painful because she's going through it right now, but she's also starting to just realize that it's deeply unfair, right? Especially as she has last chapter thought about how she's been doing her duty this whole time. And so she believes Jamie when he says most of the stuff because he isn't trying to dress any of it up, 
right? Mm. He's reflecting back to her everything that she's realizing now about how duty and honor have failed her family. Jamie is somebody who lives like in the real world, except when it comes to Cersei, right? Because, you know, That's true. Cersei can do no wrong because, you know, everything else he's a realist about in the same way that Sandor is, is real, that, that, that you mentioned Sandor, like they both are realist about the world that they live in you know what i mean because when we think about when sander talks to sansa about you know how he got his burn and how he you know he wanted to be a knight he was playing with a toy knight and he was probably no different than bran at that age thinking that he was going to be a knight too but then he learns a very brutal lesson about what it truly means to be a knight and that scar is a reminder of that that whole thing is bullshit and then same thing with jamie mm-hmm. right he's one of the youngest people to ever get knighted and then he finds out that he's nothing more than a tool that Ares is using against his father and then he gets to see what it truly means to be a, a knight <laughs> You know, where he has to witness all of these brutalities. I guess we're going to get into the whole spiel that he has about what it means to be a knight and honor and all that other gibberish. But it it speaks to the realism that he lives in and not the fantasy that, you know, she would tell Sansa about, which Sansa now is coming to learn that, no, it's not real. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) You know, knights are, are shitty people. They're, they're, yeah. they're not, they're not, there's nothing romantic about them. Very few actually live up to their nightly vows and their vows often conflict with each other because again, because people in general, sometimes in that time, you know, are shit. Well, and that is kind of the sad part, right? That like Sansa's learning this, but also Catelyn is learning this about the system at the same time as her 12 year old daughter. That to me sticks out like crazy. That, like, mm-hmm. this is something Catelyn's finally being forced to confront in these chapters in A Clash of Kings. She's being forced to finally confront that the system has always been broken, even for when she was a kid in it. Yeah. Yeah. She's starting to let herself actually feel kind of mad about what she's Rage. been through. Yeah, anger. Yeah. It's yeah. leaking through. Yeah. What's also leaking is Jamie's shit <laughs> <laughs> from the bucket. That Catelyn kicked over, and I he's like, trying to back as far away from it as he can. I like the part where he scoots back. <laughs> I feel bad for him. I'm like, this isn't a big room. You shouldn't okay. have shit that much. <laughs> Pretty much. Or maybe well, you should have you know, you tried to escape. It's like <laughs> fucking Rabelo as a Chris Chris Traeger in Parks and Rec when he's like looking at himself in the mirror and he's like, stop oh, pooping. Oh my god. <laughs> That's what I'm I saying to Jamie. That. Stop pooping, Jamie. <laughs> Uh, well he agrees with Catelyn you know despite all this he's like yeah I do have shit for honor (laughs) Um, but he points out he's like if I wanted that kid dead I would have come and done it myself and she's like alright point Yeah. Catelyn then accuses Cersei of sending the cat's paw and he says no Cersei keeps no secrets from me (laughs) (laughs) must have forgot about moon boy (laughs) hasn't found out yet they didn't define, I stand by this, they didn't define the relationship and Cersei thought they had an open relationship for obvious reasons. <laughs> Cersei thinks that about every relationship she's in, though. She's like, this is an open relationship, right? <laughs> like, you can't bang anybody, but um, I'm the queen, and so I have to render services. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. 
Yeah. She actually accuses Tyrion after this, right? She's like, all right, fine, we'll explain this. And she's like, Tyrion's dagger in the tower with Colonel Mustard. Um, <laughs> she, she does break it down and she's like, no, uh, Tyrion, <sighs> the assassin had his dagger. And Jamie's like, no, I remember that dagger. And this is this is the true story. Instead, she says it was wagered on him when he tilted against Loras. But then she starts to think and she's like, wait a second. Did I get this backwards? Which is a, a big mood because suddenly it does seem foggy. Did I get this backwards? And Jamie's like, no, Tyrion always backs me in the list. But Sir Loras unhorsed me that day. Whatever Tyrion had in the list, he lost. The dagger did change hands again later that night, he says, which this is becoming an Agatha Christie novel, and I actually really respect that. And I do have to say it's really funny because Jamie thinks Cersei took Ned's head off later on in the chapter. He's like, well, when Cersei took Ned's head off, and Catelyn's like, when you sent the cat spa, and I'm like, no, you guys, it's Joffrey. You're missing (laughs) the fact that Joffrey did both of these things. Like, that is literally the variable none of these people are understanding is that some pawns have minds of their own, even king pawns. Yes, yes. With subliminal messages. Yeah. From a puppet yeah. master somewhere. That Varys is just so so keenly to be like, mm, I'm not saying anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I'm just like, why did you not help? <laughs> you could have helped. <laughs> when, his own, when he, he had goes his own to plans visit- that all went awry. Because he did not help. Maybe if he had helped, his plans would have gone through. Anyway. Hell, both of his parents were talking about this. Both Jamie and Robert were like, what if we killed Bran? I mean, they did kind of send the cat's paw, both of them, all of them. Yeah, yeah. And, jo- and Joffrey was around to hear the conversation. Oh, I mean, Joffrey's reasons were stupid, but I, I respect Jamie and Cersei's reasons. They're, they're not, like, great reasons, but I understand wanting to keep the secret secret. <laughs> Joffrey's was just like, this will impress my dad, right? If I send an assassin to kill his best friend's son, this is what dad wants, right? <laughs> mm, uh, daddy issues. Mm. What a way to interpret all that. Anyways, so, I mean, Jamie's so salty about it, right? Because Robert would salt Jamie's wounds, brandish- brandishing it drunkenly at the feast that night. And Catelyn's putting it all together. She's like, this is interesting because Tyrion and Jamie have both told me the same story, but there's no way they could have, like, corroborated it with one another because they haven't seen each other for more than a year. So she's like, maybe this holds water. And she's like, hmm. But Peter, who's like a brother to me, who loved her more than a brother, should have. Um, interesting. And then Catelyn compartmentalizes that. And she's like, I don't understand. Why would Peter just lie to me? <laughs> Are we a family of liars now? He couldn't lie to me because, you know, he loved me once. Like, he was totally in love with me. I don't know, because she really just didn't get it that he was. Like, she just was like, that's just my father's ward. We're BFFs. Yeah. <sighs> I, th- I think this is the part where, this is the time where I feel like like she's losing her spidey senses, right? Her spidey yeah. senses are no longer on point the way they used to be. Yeah. When she first met up with Rob... She was giving him a lot of sound advice. When she went to be an envoy, she was really like on top of her political savviness. And then once Ned died, then she hears the boys are dead. Like all of that is just out the window. It really brings home when she starts to say that she talks about that she's she's like a shell of who she is. She's no longer herself anymore. Like she's lost her true sense of purpose. Like she's lost her compass. 
And so she's just grasping at straws at this point because she's just trying to hold on to what she's had so she doesn't lose anything else. Yeah. And and as you said, she's not at the top of her game right now. Like, And there have been so many hints and she's almost put it together before. She's like, I don't know, I guess Tyrion was kind of okay when we were on that trip together. But now because she has lost her sons along with her husband and has experienced so much grief, she wants anywhere to put that grief, anywhere to direct that anger, right? It doesn't matter if it's logical or not. She needs reasons and she needs to be able to let that anger out in some way. And she's obviously taking it out on Jamie a little here by kicking over his shit bucket. But that's why she can't figure out, like, why would Peter do this to me? Because she she can't let go of the idea of, I think, that little boy right who loved her especially in a doubt in a time now when she's losing the ones she loved she can't, it's hard to let go of someone who has loved you and that you trusted during this time it's easier to blame it on the people who have always been against you when she's going to King's Landing with Roderick you know in her internal thoughts you know she thinks about how sly Peter is right and she when she meets up with him she said that she didn't know if she was meeting a friend or a foe. So she knows that Peter has the ability to be sly and conniving. And I, I don't know if it was that she just so wanted to believe that the way that things left off between the both of them, that they could just like, you know, water under the bridge and we could just start anew. I have found a long lost brother and she, and he's like, she's totally brother zoning me again. After, you know, I suffered a grave wound trying to get her hand. And so it's like she knows that he's not really on the up and up. But I don't know if it's just that she just wants so badly to believe that he wouldn't do anything that egregious against her. Like it couldn't be that he would he would betray her trust and betray her that badly. Like there's no way it's Peter. Like we grew up together. You know, I kissed him on the lips a couple of times. Like, she even told a story to her dad about how they, how he came and rescued them. Like, Peter wouldn't do that. Like, he was so helpful when I came to King's Landing. Right? <laughs> like, why would he do that? Why would he lie to me? He wouldn't lie to me. And I think, again, this is where I say that she lost, you know, she's not on top of her game. Yeah. Like she used to be. Yeah. The hints are there and she's ignoring them because she's buried in her grief and also because she... I mean, it's the same thing that kills her, right? Walder Frey wouldn't betray my my trust. Wal- Walder Frey's known me since I was a girl. He would never do something so awful. Yeah, and guest rights, right? We're all honoring guest rights. And again, in that chapter, all the hints are there when you're reading her chapter, like all the signs, all of the signs that her spidey senses are, are tingling, but she keeps saying, no, that can't be it. It's just me being, it's just my grief that's talking. It's just my grief. No, your spidey senses are tingling because it's about to go down. You see all the all the fulani and the buffoonery and the balderdashery that's going on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like now is the time she should have been questioning herself. You know, like at that point, it was like, Catalan, your guts were are right. Uh, It's like also she's so imbued with self doubt and with like dissociating from the idea of even just like existing. Right, as she loses child after child and thing after thing, and as things get taken away from her by the end of Storm of Swords, how could she be confident in herself and trust herself? She's broken herself down. She's not the woman she was. Yeah, she, she's alone. She's alone, and she doesn't have anybody to kind of like. Who's guiding her? Like she says that she doesn't have anybody to rescue her. You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. Nobody's there to kind of rescue her from her grief. Absolutely. And I mean, there isn't anyone for her to turn to, right? The only person that she's been able to really talk about this to any extent, honestly, for some strange reason, it's Jamie Lannister. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, though, right? Like, uh, And now it's Jamie's turn in this game. And he's like, all right, my turn. Have Robert's brothers taken to the field? And she's like, they have. And he's like, okay, that was a shit answer. That is unfair. I've been very good during this game. And tell me more. So she tells him reluctantly that Stannis has marched on King's Landing. And Renly was murdered by him in Bitterbridge through Black Arts. And interestingly, Jamie's not like, what the fuck does that mean? Because Catelyn's got a whole story about that, all right? <laughs> and Jamie says, that's a bummer. I actually kind of liked Renly. But Stannis, on the other hand, not so much. He yes. asks... Okay, so what side of the Tyrells taken? And she's like, well, they took Renly's side at first, but now I don't know. And then Jamie interestingly comments that her boy, Rob, must be feeling awfully lonely right now. And I'm like, oh, interesting. Interesting foreshadowing. That is actually, in fact, how Rob does feel right now. He does indeed feel lonely, especially after he learns about his brother's fates. But... Um, not really their fates, because again, they are still alive. <laughs> not not only that, he screwed up the whole Frey alliance by marrying Jane Wrestling by doing the honorable thing. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like uh, oh, Rob. <laughs> right. But it was a setup. We all know it was a setup. Yeah. But like, yeah. keeping your oath is also an honorable thing, right? Well, you know. It- to someone who gave you a bunch of armies. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, his mother did say, you know, listen, you could have just kept her as a mistress, man. You could have just set her up, given her a nice setup, and then, you know, kept. He's like, but mom, that wouldn't have been the honorable. It's like, dude, this is where I would have imagined her like smacking him across the head, like, <laughs> do you realize what you've done? This is Walter Frey. Yeah. yeah. That kind of information is stuff that she should have purveyed to him before he was of fucking and marrying age. Mm. You know, like, these are things that you teach your child that maybe having a bastard could be okay. Oh, wait. And there you have it, my friends. I digress. (laughs) That's the problem. Because, like, he can't talk to her about it. How could he? She taught him without words that that's what he should do, that he should marry someone that he has sex with. Right or unless they have a bastard, because look at the way that she treated the bastard in their family mm. for his whole life. And Rob's like, "Well, I don't want any kind of mine to go through that." Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the shame—the uh, shame he feels isn't because of society on bastards; it's because of Catalan's yes view on yeah. bastards. You know, it's a personal—it's a personal problem. It's a mommy issue he's got going on. And, and yeah. I think he's very. He was very sensitive to the way that his mother treated John, right? Because, yeah. you know, him and John were like besties and stuff. And it's kind of hard trying to navigate this relationship that you have with your brother, knowing that your mom, like, treats him like, like shit, but there's nothing that you can really do about it. And in, in a lot of other respects, your father didn't really do much about it either. Like, he kind of yeah. turned a blind eye to it and didn't really, yep. like, you know... You correct her in one respect, but you don't correct her in another respect other than to say, listen, he's my blood. You know what I mean? And he's going to be here. I'm going to raise him. And that's just the way that it is. And you don't need to ask me any questions and you don't need to go around questioning anything, anybody else around him. But 
you know she treats him like crap and then you do nothing except go to the weirwoods and like pray that hey can you just soften her art so that she'll treat him better like come on yeah why don't you communicate with your wife yeah i mean and and the way that ned dealt with his grief right is by very much withdrawing Mm. and holding everything in granted he got to fight a war and try and get vengeance for his family so he did get that aspect whereas catelyn here doesn't get to so actively get vengeance for her family she has had to hold in her anger all these years about that sort of disrespect from ned and now she has to do it regarding the disrespect and the deaths happening to her family and unlike ned you know just like compartmentalizing and pushing everything down she's she's lashing out right Mm -hmm. she's trying to take what actions she can and she reminds jamie that you know what rob turned 16 like three days ago and he's a man grown and a king so shut the fuck up (laughs) he's won every battle that he's fought and is just taking the crag from the westerlings and jamie's like okay well has he faced tywin yet he hasn't but catelyn says that he'll defeat him anyway just like he defeated you (laughs) ha it's kind of crazy because you can feel Jamie's bitterness and that like Rob is living the life that like Jamie wishes he was living Mm, like like, he's mm. watching this 15 16 year old motherfucker out there on the field tearing it up this prodigy winning every battle and he's bitter here he's literally wasted away in the Kingsguard he craves nothing but a mother and father saying they're proud of him right like Catelyn is out here like how dare you say that about my son? My son would never let this happen. My son this, my son that. She's like, my baby boy is going to beat the fuck out of your dad. Fuck you. That's, I almost feel really sad there for Jamie because this is like, this is the mm. life he could never have. He could never have Joanna, you know, defending him saying, my son is a star athlete and he's going to go fuck it up out there. That's, he doesn't have anyone saying that about him not even his father really for his father it's mechanical it's like how earlier brienne's eating is mechanical for his father it's what jamie's expected to do is uh well you're expected to do this yes exactly yeah and literally no one's on his side or cheering for him because kingslayer (laughs) we're gonna get (laughs) to that in a bit i mean you know he's he's tainted he lashes out right because as you said he's bitter and jealous and says that well rob used a craven's trick and catelyn counters that okay well Tyrion sent cutthroats under a peace banner and i'm like real bold of jamie to say that you know rob couldn't beat tywin and uses a craven's trick when i'm like literally literally the whole red wedding is the biggest the biggest craven's trick yes exactly and then tywin later admits that this was the cheapest way that he could get rid of a great foe he realized that rob was a really true threat and the only way he was gonna be able to get rid of him was using a cheap trick and he did it in such a way where his hands were quote-unquote clean Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's actually one of rob's supposed bannermen that actually kills him and allegedly. so, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, allegedly. Yeah. And so, and he really didn't really have anything to do with it. And of course, Walder Frey does this because he thinks that he has the protection of Tywin Lannister. He's going to come to find out that, you know, that protection wasn't really worth shit because Tywin is now dead. Ah, uh, exciting. Jamie asks her if it were one of her sons in the cell, wouldn't his brothers do the same? But Catelyn thinks her son has no brothers. She refuses to share her pain with him, and he asks, What's a brother's life when honor's at stake, eh? 
<laughs> I this this felt so significant for a couple reasons because of course the first thing I think of is what is honor compared to a woman's love? Mm-hmm. What is duty against the feel of a newborn son in your arms or the memory of a brother's smile? All these things that these two aren't you know going to be very hurt about by the end of the series, uh, and it also you know. It, it, it's interesting because it just brings me back to Jon Snow, you know, the end of A Dance with Dragons when he, he sees his siblings in his head, even the ones that some people may say he isn't close with necessarily. He sees each of his siblings doing something they love in Winterfell in his mind's eye and he stops and he goes, I think we best change the plan yeah, and puts that all into motion. And like, that's what's a brother's life when honor's at stake for mm-hmm. Jamie, It's his love of Tyrion. You know, I mean, springing him, getting him out of the city later after he kills their father, the man that's, you know, held them pretty much prisoner with emotional abuse all their life. Whether they want to admit it or not, for Jamie, you know, he might not realize or admit that, but it's true. And And sexual uh, abuse for Tyrion. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. It's just rough to think about that. What is a brother's life when honors its state? And apparently the answer is more. Way more. (laughs) (laughs) Way more, Royce? Oh, Wow. Thanks. Be here all day. That's deep. (laughs) There's something there. Uh, Jamie says that Tyrion is clever enough to realize Rob would never consent to ransoming him. And she responds Rob's bannerman, specifically Lord Karstark, would sooner see Jamie dead after killing two of his own sons. Jamie shrugs, saying, Well, I was just trying to get to Rob. Honestly, they got in the way. He says they were killed in fair fight, heat of battle. That is kind of the goal during battle. And any knight would have done the same. And he's not wrong. No, I mean, it's true. Because Rob later says the same thing to Karstark. Like, listen, your sons died defending me on the battlefield with swords in their hands. They died honorable. I don't know about death being honorable, I guess. But they died honorably. You know what I mean? They, yeah. they Like, he allowed his grief to kind of invalidate their death. Like, they were killed under some sort of treachery when they were... It was a battle. That's what happens. People die when you're in a battle. There's the casualties happen. It just so happened that both your sons were, were part of that casualty. Um you know, when they were on the front line and his grief was just so great that he needed to have some sort of, and here we go with the vengeance thing again, right? He wanted vengeance for the death of his sons. It was all well and good when it was about getting revenge for Ned. And now I want to get revenge. You know, I have the ability to avenge my sons right here. You know what I mean? I want to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it, Makes sense that it happens in Catelyn's chapter. It's a great mirror to who she becomes, who she's becoming, mm. right? As she expresses those desires too. Well, then we get to, you know, one of the most iconic moments <laughs> in this chapter. How can you still count yourself a knight when you have forsaken every vow you ever swore? Jamie reached for the flagon to refill his cup. So many vows. They make you swear and swear. Defend the king. Obey the king. Keep his secrets. Do his bidding. Your life for his. But obey your father. Love your sister. Protect the innocent. Defend the weak. Respect the gods. Obey the laws. It's too much. No matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow for the other. It's such a good passage, and that's why it's quoted very often. And I think 
for other obvious reasons, it's a perfect way to really introduce Jamie as his own full-fledged character, especially as it then, like, dives into his own chapters that open book three. Um, and we've already discussed that in the Jamie chapters, but part of the strength of this passage is that Jamie's monologue is delivered, again, through Catelyn's chapters, and it really hammers home some of the things that are going on for her and is a mirror to what she was thinking about in the previous chapter, where she was thinking about how she always did her duty, right? She she did everything her parents said. She was the lady of the house. Uh, she was the heir for a bit, and then she marries Brandon, and then afterwards marries Ned, and thanks her father for all these wonderful matches. <laughs> and Jamie Lannister gives a voice to the fact that, you know what? Doing your duty is actually very hard, and that what Catelyn did wasn't any small feat. What she did was actually very difficult. And as he talks about how he finally learned to stop doing his duty, right, in the sense of what people think his duty is in terms of Westerosi society versus the moral good, right? Mm -hmm. Just as how speaking with Brienne has helped Catelyn finally voice her longing for vengeance, Jamie's tirade opens the door for Catelyn to stop doing the duty that she thinks she's supposed to be doing, right? As as a lady, right? And as as you were saying earlier, Monero, she reshifts what she thinks her duty is into saving her family, saving those girls, just as Jamie was like, you know what, my duty is to the realm and like saving all these people in King's Landing, all right, not letting this psycho blow everything up. And by Jamie saying this all aloud, it finally gives Catelyn the understanding of like, wait, all of this was unfair. Everything that I thought, right, of how chivalry and the system works, all of this was wrong. And I think that really comes through, especially as he relays what's happened to Brandon, who features prominently, again, in Catelyn's reflections on duty last chapter. She's like, you know what? Yeah, like... Part of the whole thing is her dad made a match for her to Brandon, and she thanked him for what a good match, Daddy. Thank you so much. <laughs> Match.com. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Ew, what if your parents were the ones? Uh, never mind. <laughs> Welcome to feudalism, baby. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> the goading is very obvious, and it is rough. This is, I mean, this is one of those best passages, because like you said, this is... It's iconic, right? Like, this is iconic, A Song of Ice and Fire. This is what it's about. It's that heart in conflict with itself. And Jamie was told from every direction to be someone else. And now he's dealing with a full-on identity crisis at 30-whatever. I mean, he also had it at 16, so he's had it at many times. Good for him. When does the identity crisis stop being, like, a crisis and just being part of you? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> his identity is crisis <laughs> that's mine holy shit I get that. <laughs> wow <sighs> that whole monologue right he's actually talking about himself right because whatever mm -hmm. ideals he had with what it meant to be a knight and what it and it's like <laughs> you know how how you'll see the pictures like <laughs> instagram <laughs> reality and so he had an idea of what it meant to be a knight and then the reality was just so much more different. After he tells the story of how Bran and Rickard Stark dies, he tells the story of how Gerald Hightower telling him, listen, mm -hmm. you took a vow to protect the king, not judge him. Okay. You also hear in his, he also has this other memory where he hears Ares raping Rayella and, mm -hmm. you know, and he has this conversation, I think it was with, was it with Dane or was it Hightower again? 
where he's like, I thought we were supposed to protect the weak. Yeah, but we can't protect her from him, right? Because mm-hmm. he's the king. That's just the sucky side of of what it really truly means to be a knight. You can't win. There is no win in being a knight. Because yeah. mm-hmm. you're either doing a great service and then they praise you for it, or you're going to abandon that service to try to do another service, and then you get demonized for it, right? And so he kills Ares because he knows Ares is about to blow up King's Landing and burn everybody because he thinks that he's going to come out like the Phoenix and, and be okay. And so he takes action in order to do that. But everybody just sees him as somebody who killed the king. But you guys were usurping him anyway. What does it matter that he right. killed him? Yeah. What does it really matter? Like Every one of these motherfuckers was out there ready to stab him in the back. But Jamie actually does. And now he's the villain. Right. And I agree with him when he said that, you know, that, you know, Ned was like, Ned had no reason to come on his high horse and try to and judge him yeah. for it. Like, yeah, that was a bit much. Yeah, sometimes honor can, you know, sometimes you can be a little bit too honorable. Sometimes you just need to take a step back because you don't know the full story. You walked in on something and you just made an assumption, but you don't know the full story and you didn't take the time to find out the full story. And even after you did, you still stayed on your high horse about it. But now you're dead, so I guess it doesn't matter. (laughs) Your Lannister prejudices. Like, you abandoned your honor. (laughs) Like, he straight abandoned his honor, and then it still got him killed, so. Now, that said, though, Jamie, just because, like, everyone was like, there's no way Jamie Lannister could actually be bad. That doesn't mean you just have to be bad. (laughs) On that same note, Jamie. He's a bad boy. Yeah. He Lost. just, he, well, he goes completely the other way, right? Because he was like, mm-hmm. well, if doing this one really good thing and I'm going to get like blamed for doing this good thing, what's the fucking point? Yes. And because he was like, clearly the rules are fucked, right? And he's, he finally realizes at the wonderful age of 16, 17, like 18 or so, he's like, wow, the rules are shit. All these vows don't mean anything if we're not actually doing the right thing or we're not doing the thing that we want or believe in. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, part of what's going on with Catelyn here. I will say amongst these vows, right, in his his little monologue is um, love your sister. And I'm like, I don't think they meant like that, Jamie. That's (laughs) not what they meant. When That's the best one sister. he did so far. <laughs> That's the only one that he did a great, great job on. <laughs> Uh, God. Hey, there's still time. And that's really what Jamie's arc is about, is that there's still time to become somewhat of a human being instead of a monster. And the way he's so yeah. proud about the fact that he's never cheated on his sister. It's like, it's right. like, that's not something that's... we should be proud about, honey. <laughs> Maybe I mean, go on some a, dates. He's got an interesting point, though. He has an interesting point. I, it's not like, it, it's a weird-ass point, but I'm like, interesting. Um, Different you know. worlds. Different worlds, you know. Those, Lannis- those Lannister brothers. <laughs> mm. Twist and words around. Well, he continues on and tells her how he was the youngest ever to wear the cloak. And she's like, yeah, and you betrayed everything it stood for, Kingslayer. And he has this great line, and such a king he was. And he puts the wine up in the air. Uh, he asks her if she knows the true story behind Brandon's murder or Rickard's, and she says she doesn't want to know, but he goads her, saying Ned wanted to spare his not-so-maiden wife, there's that little finger dig, saying Brandon had been different than Ned, with blood in his veins, not ice, more like Jamie. But Catalan rejects that. She's like, um, Brandon was not like you, remembering 
And then, of course, she remembers that Brandon had been on his way to River Run when he heard about Lyanna and turned to King's Landing instead. I will say, I think Catelyn is right. Uh, Brandon is, in fact, very different from Jamie, even though he thinks they're both hot-headed, because Brandon slept with many women, none of whom were his sister, and Jamie's only slept with his sister. So that's a big difference between them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do think it's different. It's interesting. Well, I mean, Catelyn's here, you know. There's an opportunity, but... <laughs> It's interesting how Catelyn finds her throat growing tight as she recounts what happened to Brandon. Like Brandon's throat going tight <laughs> as he died. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Shit. Uh, ow. Yeah, that too. But also, yeah, because I guess she's choking up because she's actually, like, sad. And I'm like, shit, I don't think I really realized the amount that Catelyn really felt for Brandon, right? Because I think it shows us that she did have some attachment to him. It's not really dwelt on much in her chapters or in Ned's, even though, like, the whole book series kind of starts out in their chapters with, like, oh, Brandon was a ghost hanging over their marriage. One of the many, because there's a lot of trauma in their family. But, like, I didn't realize that she was that enamored of him. I think so. I I think that's when she talks about how she she learned to love Ned, to Mm -hmm. me, that just let me know that it, you know, he wasn't the first choice. And, you know, she talks about how he was, he had just this plain face. Brandon was the rock star. Like, you know, he was the ladies man. He had the looks. He was, you know. Yeah. He was the wild wolf. You know what I mean? He He dodged the bullet. He was he was spicy. Yeah. He was spicy. You know what I mean? Yeah. He was he, he was, was the spicy. He was the spicy Stark and she got she got Ned. Salted chicken. <laughs> hey, at least that chicken was salted. You know, she she got the Barely. baked chicken instead of the fried the fried hot wings, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, that sounds delicious. And so, you know, so she had to like over time learn to love ned and it could have also been because ned was putting it down i mean you know five kids later (laughs) (laughs) yeah well also it's not like he was like open though right like you couldn't get that spark with a man who refuses to speak about anything because he's so scared and full of trauma that he can't right yeah right maybe it was his he felt like it was his duty to like you know sleep with her but obviously she's grown to love him and even to the point where she has a some physical attraction for him when Mm -hmm. we read the chapter of how you know after they had finished making love she's like you know she wanted him to come back but he left the bed so you know she had developed some form of not only emotional attachment some but also the physical attachment so over time even though her original attraction and and feelings were for brandon and that even though it still loomed she was able to form a love and attachment for ned over time mm-hmm. so and I, th- I do think she dodged a bullet because i think brandon was a lot like robert and also mm-hmm. i i'm gonna throw this out there sidetracking us a bit i bet ned probably ended up being better in bed than Brandon because Brandon could just get it so easily. I bet he just like pumped and was done. And I bet Ned worked for Ned, it. Yeah, Ned worked for it. Ned actually did foreplay. Ned, yeah. you know, took care of his woman and that's why and also you were like, you know, she wanted more after he left and I think, you know, he leaves her always wanting a little more. Yeah. 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 You know? Doesn't even have a head to stand anyways. <laughs> Well, yeah, he used to give her head, not anymore. At least he's left his skill to his his quote unquote That's bastard true. son, bastard son. Like he, That's true. he knows how to give the Lord's kiss. And she was like, how do you know how to do that? I don't know. I just, but I try it. Just something I picked up from my genetic code. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, one of the more interesting parts of this to me is that, like, Jamie and Catalan are both working through separate problems and not listening to the other at all. Like, so Jamie is talking Mm -hmm. about his life trauma. She is thinking about hers. Neither of them are having the same conversation right now, right? Jamie's conversation is completely, he's all like, and then this happened and Catalan's in her head and she's just like, my kids are dead. My life is dead. Everything's (laughs) awful. And Catalan is sitting here wondering why she wasn't enough for Brandon Mm. to turn around and keep going to River Run. Yeah. Catalan is wondering why Brandon turned and went to King's Landing. Why he chose, because he had a choice. He could have gone to River Run, like Ned did, married Catalan, right? Ned didn't go to war until after he married Catalan first. He had to marry her, make sure the swords were good. You know, dads are happy, war's great, his whole family's dead now, so it's all up to her uh, to have family that lives. <laughs> and they get married, but like, Brandon didn't go to river run brandon stopped brandon went to king's landing and that's the one thought she doesn't let herself have eliana you mentioned she doesn't think about brandon a lot like actively but it's Mm -hmm. obvious like from here that it's always been quietly in the back of her head the one thing she never allowed herself to think the opposite thing ned did and jamie here is also bitterly like reminiscing of this stolen youth from the war the same way but about the king's guard and how you know the name. I mean, all he's sitting here this whole time upset. And he's like, yeah, Kingslayer. Do you know what it means, Catalan? I'm going to tell you everything it means. And she's like, oh, you're right. Brandon's cock probably was huge. Oh. <laughs> um, and that's like, but at the same time, they are having the same conversation. They just don't yeah. know they're having this. You know, like, yeah. they're yeah. talking about the same fucking thing. It's just they're not listening to each other at all. At all. That's true. They should have just fucked. Yeah, being King's guard sucks. <laughs> I never, I'll never well, know what it was like okay. with Brandon. Right. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's such a that's a great point that they're talking past one another. Yet somehow, somehow this therapy session, I was gonna say it's working for them, but I actually don't think it works out for them. But it does lead to action. There are next steps involved at the end of this chapter. Um, it's called springing Jamie from jail. <laughs> Anyways, the great escape. <laughs> uh, the great escape yes it is a pretty great escape because then we get the rest of the story with jamie's chapters and brienne's it's actually pretty good catlin remembers hosser raging when they heard the news calling brandon a gallant fool i love this jamie pours himself a half cup of wine it's like the end of the wine he's like i may as well help myself you know because he's a messy bitch and he loves to cause drama because he's like <laughs> yes. oh, oh good i've opened all these old wounds in you lady catlin go on <laughs> the Lannisters do love to do that, though, in general, now that I think they about it. They are huge trolls. Yeah, absolutely. They are messy. Messy bitches. And he goes on with the story. So Jamie tells the story. Catelyn fills in the northern gaps that he doesn't quite know. Brandon rode to the Red Keep with Ethan Glover, Jeffrey Malister, Kyle Royce, and Albert Aaron, who was John Aaron's heir. He called for Rhaegar to come out and die, and Ares sends guards to arrest them, calling for their fathers and lords to come and be held accountable for their crimes. Lord Rickard demands trial by combat, armoring himself to face a member of the King's Guard, maybe even Jamie. But the King answered that request with fire, suspending him from the rafters while the pyromancer's rotisserie has asked from beneath. Fire was the champion of House Targaryen, Ares had said. Rickard could only prove himself innocent by not burning. 
Aries brings Brandon in a while when the fire's full blaze, hands chained behind his back, a leathern cord on his neck attached to a Tyroshi device. His legs are free and his sword set down just beyond his reach. And I do have to comment rather inappropriately, Brandon's sword was a long sword. Didn't see that coming. <laughs> well, we didn't see it coming because he died. Uh... Insensitive, Jamie then says Rickard's cloak caught first, then his surcoat, and soon he wore only metal and ashes. He would start to cook within his armor next unless Brandon was able to save him. But as Brandon tried and struggled, the cord constricted around his throat, and he strangled himself to his death and Rickard roasted. And all the while, all Kat can think of now is the heads of her Brandon and her Rickon mounted at the Winterfell gates, right? Two more deaths in exchange. And it's just so terrible because it's like he is forcing her to grieve. He is forcing her to look all of this monstrous mess in the eye and she cannot look away. And it's weird because they're like their namesakes, right? Brand, yeah. Brandon, mm-hmm. Ricard, Rickon. Exactly. It's... And he doesn't even know, right? Jamie doesn't nope. know that these are the sons that she's mourning the deaths of. Yet somehow, somehow, as you said, brings up their namesakes and... It's not traumatic for Catelyn at all. This is fine. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's fine. It's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. (sighs) Well, then we get to this uh, very actually climactic um, end of the chapter. Not all ends of chapters are so climactic, but this one is. And not in that way, even though we would have been, even though we've been saying that it would be that way, but it's not that way. (laughs) Oh, like a sex climax. I get it. (laughs) You're making a sexy joke. I am. Uh, all right. Was it good for him as it was for her? <laughs> oh my god. She's not blonde enough. <laughs> or green-eyed enough. Yeah. Or related enough. <laughs> yeah. I stood at the foot of the Iron Throne in my white armor and white cloak, filling my head with thoughts of Cersei. After... Gerald Hightower himself took me aside and said to me, You swore a vow to guard the king, not to judge him. That was the white bull, loyal to the end and a better man than me. All agree. Ares. Catelyn could taste bile at the back of her throat. The story was so hideous, she suspected it had to be true. Ares was mad. The whole realm knew it. But if you would have me believe you slew him to avenge Brandon Stark. I made no such claim. The Starks were nothing to me. I will say, I think it passing odd that I am loved by one for a kindness I never did, and reviled by so many for my finest act. At Robert's coronation, I was made to kneel at the royal feet beside Grand Maester Pysal and Varys the eunuch, so that he might forgive us our crimes before he took us into his service. As for your Ned, he should have kissed the hand that slew Ares, but he preferred to scorn the arse he found sitting on Robert's throne. I think Ned Stark loved Robert better than he ever loved his brother, or his father, or even you, my lady. He was never unfaithful to Robert, was he? Jamie gave a drunken laugh. Come, Lady Stark, don't you find all this terribly amusing? I find nothing about you amusing, Kingslayer. That name again. I don't think I'll fuck you after all. Littlefinger had you first, didn't he? I never eat off another man's trencher. Besides, you're not half so lovely as my sister. His smile cut. I've never lain with any woman but Cersei. In my own way, I've been truer than your net ever was. 
Poor old dead Ned. So who has shit for honor now, I ask you? What was the name of that bastard he fathered? Brienne? No, that wasn't it. Jamie Lannister upended the flagon. A trickle ran down onto his face, bright as blood. Snow, that was the one. Such a white name, like the pretty cloaks they give us in the Kingsguard when we swear our pretty oaths. Brienne pushed open the door and stepped inside the cell. You called, my lady. Give me your sword. Catelyn held out her hand. Jamie is such a troll. He is such a troll. He is he such is. a shit ass. Oh my god. Also, oh, I mean, he has nothing else left. In there. <laughs> I know. You know, it's now or never, though. Like, he literally will never, ever get this chance again to talk shit to her. So good for him on that. You know what I mean? Like, go shoot your shot there in the DMs. But yeah, he really did shoot a shot in the DMs a little, though. He was like, I'm never going to get to really, really honestly flirt with someone ever and again. not actually have to deal with, like, them reciprocating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I have to point out, of course, the very amazing end in this ultimate Clash of Kings chapter of Sword, right? Because that is confirmed the word that Brienne yells to Lady Stoneheart when they meet once more, right? When she meets Lady Stoneheart. Yes. Yeah, from that chapter, she says that you must choose. Take the sword and slay the Kingslayer, or be hanged for a betrayer. The sword or the noose, she says, choose. She says, choose. The same exact offer she's going to extend once more. And the construction here is brilliant. This is Kat's mm-hmm. last chapter in A Clash of Kings, and we still have 15 chapters to go in the book, not counting. Damn. So, like, after this. So she falls off, and then we actually start A Storm of Swords with the chapter that answers this, Jamie 1. Right, so Jamie 1 is the exact answer to Cat 7. It is exactly where we left off from Cat 7. And then not too long after, we go right into Cat 1 in A Storm of Swords. Mm. And Jamie 1 and Cat 1, which we're going to talk a little bit about some of the parallels of those when we do that chapter here in September. Uh, But it's perfect how they're laid together because this is the plot that George cuts you out of. You don't know what's happening. You just know that was it. Now to check on the other people until the end of the book, the Blackwater takes over and you forget all about it. But you open Storm. You open the Storm of Swords with Jamie 1 and thinking, of course, more about Hightower and thinking about these knights and these men in the system that have failed him. And then you have Cat, who's sitting here with Desmond Grell in Cat 1, who's disappointed because now he's seen her grow from a young woman to a young lady and to a still mostly young lady, because again, 32. Mm-hmm. She's 32. She's not old. <laughs> but she thinks, you know, now he's seen me become a traitor. And so to start off a storm of swords in the exact opposite position that Jamie is free, cats in chains, mm. quote unquote, not real chains, but, you know, chains. Yeah, It's a perfect way to end this arc and bring it back up in storm. Absolutely. It's it's that's such a great parallel. I love that the the way that this chapter ends with as you said the end of Brienne's in the feast for crows and you know who knows who knows what the end of Brienne's chapters in Winds of Winter are going to be. What other parallels are we going to get? I don't know, but I look forward to one day reading them. I do. I know. I know. I'm growing older in my grief. I too am uh, 
changing, but um, yeah, that parallel is so good, you know, um, in terms of she's asking for Brienne's sword. Part of it is in service to her, right, mm-hmm. to do this thing. But at the same time, she's also, I think, kind of, there's there's also a way of asking and putting Jamie right, swearing his sword a little, too, especially as he starts changing and is like, but what if, what if I did good things, maybe, every now and then? So I love that. And also when you were talking about Gerald Hightower, uh, Jamie points out, you know, that line, and I think you're talking about this too, Monero, of, um, you know, loyal to the end and a better man than me, all agree. And I just love how that hits on a reread, right? Jamie's being bitter about Hightower and what you were saying earlier about how that also fits in with the hypocrisy of them not being asked to stop the raping of Rael Targaryen and... You know, how Jamie comes to realize, like, what's the fucking point of following the rules and the law if it's unjust, and how he hates being complicit in that system. And it's the same system that, again, like, Catelyn has been following her whole life, only now to find herself completely alone at the end, her family all disappearing one by one. What's the point of the system if it doesn't keep my family safe? And just as Jamie takes justice into his own hands, right, vengeance into his own hands when he's like, I'm gonna kill Ares... Catelyn inches towards that, right? Starting with this treasonous act of releasing the Kingslayer, because she realizes, same as young Jamie, she's like, well, if I want results, I gotta just do it. I gotta take things into my own hands because the rules aren't working for me anymore. Yeah, they're going in opposite directions, right? Like, as Jamie becomes more uh. human, Catelyn loses her humanity. Exactly, exactly. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the things that she says in that chapter actually she becomes those things when we read her, we read a lot of her Lady Stoneheart arcs, right? She says that she doesn't have a heart anymore. There's a hole where her heart mm. used to be. And, you know, she's now heartless when she talks about she's a creature of grief. She actually does indeed become a creature, but mm. not necessarily of grief, but of vengeance, where she doesn't recognize friend or foe. She's just singularly focused on revenge and getting revenge. And you would think, oh, I remember Brienne, but no one is safe. No one is safe who comes across her path. It's either you're with me or you're not. Hmm. That's a great point. She starts to, when it comes to rules, she starts to make her own, right? There's no in-between of morality. As you said, you're either on her side or you're not. That's such a great point. And she fails to see the context behind things anymore. She's failing to see it here already. She's starting to go that way too. I think the grief, the grief of the loss of, of her son, she snapped at the end, you know, when Rob is killed in front of her, she, she, she just snaps by that point. She was already at a breaking point Mm -hmm. where she's just like, she totally loses it and goes totally mad for lack of a better term. She goes totally mad. And so the demise of her character from where she started, this chapter kind of like shows you the rapid decline of who this woman is from, you know, from this woman of strength to just this woman who's just barely hanging on to life and to purpose because she's just like, I'm just so alone. I don't have a voice and I have to make my own way because there's not anybody that's going to make it for me. And I am desperate and I'm going to do what I think that I have to do in order to hold on to those things that are whoever is left. I have to try to hold on to it. Even up, up until the end, she tried to save Rob and it just it just didn't work. 
Yeah, and and that manifests right in her. Again, she, like you said, she snaps and she kills poor Jingle Bell. Um, she's like, I'm going to take vengeance on anyone and everyone now. And she's like, all right, no one's going to draw the dagger for me. I will do it then. Yeah. Because what, what does it matter if she dies, right? Like, at yeah. this point, it's like she's already not even living. Yeah. It's a pretty heavy yeah. chapter. <laughs> she only asks that they don't cut her hair. <sighs> Ned loves my hair. Ned how how dare you both? Why would you do that, that to me? I, because I felt like being hurtful. I was, I was reading a lot of Jamie Lannister. I was like, what if I too said hurtful things? <laughs> Did you have fun with your experiment? Because it hurt me. Yes. <laughs> You're going to kick my shit bucket over? Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to kick your shit bucket to fucking hell. See if you can get it then. Shit. Uh... <laughs> uh... Yeah, they don't get easier. That's why I I truly appreciate Catelyn's character. Like, even though she's not perfect, she's flawed. She's still a relatable character, especially if you're somebody who's a mother or a guardian or whatever. When you're just trying so hard to protect your kids and it just seems that everything is conspiring against you and you're just losing them. I mean, five kids, you and you feel like you're losing yeah. all of them. It's like, it's got to do something to you that's like, you know, you, you find yourself grasping at straws <laughs> at some point where it's like, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I couldn't even imagine what that is like. I would never even want to experience that level of pain. You know, I think you lose a spouse. Yes, you'll grieve. Yes, you lost your spouse, but your kids, it's something like totally different. And even though though us, the readers know that they're not dead, but she doesn't. And so this is a very real grief for her. Yeah, it's really horrible. Was Catelyn wrong to leave Rickon and Bran behind? Did she fail in her duty there? And what does that mean for how she's reacting to this news? I think there's a lot of guilt with that because I'm sure that she's going to have a lot of what if moments. What if I just stayed? I could have sent somebody else. As a matter of fact, I think it was Roderick who said, why should you go? I can go or somebody else can go. But she was insistent that she's the one that has to go. Right. And so probably in hindsight, she may thought to herself that, you know, maybe she should have stayed. And even when she had the opportunity, she was returning back home and she comes across Tyrion in the inn. She could have just still gone home and sent a raven to Ned. Yo, this dude is heading back to King's Landing and let Ned handle it. But no, she felt like she needed, she, she ran with her emotions and again intervened. And so she set a series of emotions, like by her own actions, she set a series of emo- events in place where you had every opportunity to return home. Would things probably would have played out differently had she been home? I think so. I don't think Theon would have felt brave enough to go and raid Winterfell if she'd have been home. I don't think so. Her sons wouldn't be scattered to the wind. If she would have been home, I I really don't think those things would have happened. And I'm sure those things were very much so playing in her mind, even though they don't, they're not explicitly said in the chapters, but we can kind of read between the lines in how she's reminiscing about her kids. Yeah. Yeah. The only, I would only argue, the only argument I would make is that I think that if she and Roderick and the Greek gang were all home, um, I still think it would have gone the same way. 
I mean, I don't think that her being home would change that much. I don't. I don't think she... I mean, physically, maybe. Maybe the way the house is guarded would be different, but I just don't see where everyone is in the South warring and her at home. I don't know if it's that powerful enough to change things. And the other thing I would say is that I do think, like, she's really hard on herself about she should have gone back, she should have stayed. But I also think that with her father dying, I mean, I kind of feel like you're expected to be the ambassador to the Riverlands in your marriage, right? Like, for House Stark, like... And it's unprecedented times, but I don't know that sending your 15-year-old son south to go deal with family members he doesn't know, slash lords he's never met before that aren't even your lords, I don't know if anyone was actually, like, could have actually gone instead of her. Do you think Rob would have left, would have marched south if she'd have stayed home? Because he he didn't march until after she was gone, and so Mm -hmm. she wasn't she wasn't home when he made the choice to march south and there was never any discussion with his mother before he marched mm-hmm. south around that time she was still in the veil so mm-hmm. do you think that he would have marched south or i'm sure they would have had some sort of a discussion about it yeah i think they'd still have gathered the banners i think it just would have taken place maybe we started off north instead you know like maybe it wouldn't have gotten so far south i think that's the part of it that makes me think she had to because there's no way the north could have won the war without the riverlands right also there's no way the riverlands can continue to exist and be sustained with what's happening to them from the lannisters and from the westerlands so that all together like they don't have resources without the riverlands and you're in the exact position you were in during the rebellion someone needs the riverlands someone needs the swords of the riverlands someone needs the resources of the riverlands and also to protect it because it's like such a central location so i think it honestly just all comes down to she is from house tully and that is her duty i think they made a really bad tactical decision in bringing all of their ban you know the majority of their yeah. bannermen agreed a hundred percent agreed we see that with donella hornwood right like yeah. that nobody gave a shit to give her a guard home and then ramsey just swooped in like you guys just thought no one's gonna come it- it's like leaving your car unlocked in a bad area you know yes and net as much as said that to her when she was in king's landing like listen make sure you we man up moat kaelin because that's like the bottleneck if you hold moat kaelin nobody's getting through to the north getting through to mm-hmm. the north like he says that but for, you know Along the way, she loses all of that. So I think that that was a tactical error. Yeah. I, I could blame Rob for that. But then, you know, he had a lot of men who were experienced, experienced men who of battle who should have advised them to say, you know, you go. Some of us are going to stay here and kind of guard the home front so that we make sure that we're not leaving it undefended. I mean, yeah. what was Roderick going to do? Like. Every time there was something happening, he had to ride out with everybody. And then that left, you know, Winterfell vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. And another example of that, right, is Ned told Catelyn and Catelyn also advised Rob, we should keep Theon close. That's the whole point of him being aboard. And then they didn't. <laughs> he went and right home to his dad. <laughs> like yeah, he went right home to his dad. And he was like, I also have daddy issues too. I think if she would have impressed, like your father said that you need to keep, Theon, you because know, for him, it's like his mom is just being a nag telling him to keep Theon close and he's having to defend. Well, Theon did this and Theon did that. So he's cool. I think if she just said, you know, your father specifically instructed that we keep Theon close, I think Rob would have probably 
and I hate to say it like that, like, you know, why is it his father's word is more, way holds more yeah. weight than his mom. But, you know, that's just the time that they were living in. And so, unfortunately, you just got to deal with the rules. Listen, the father's word has more weight than the mom's. And so I think if she'd have expressed it in those terms, he may have been more quick to listen. Like if my dad is saying it, I got to, you know, he knows best. I do think if she were in Winterfell, though, with Brynn and Rickon, at least if everything went down the way that it did, then she would be running away with them and she would know they were alive. So mm-hmm. there's that. Ah, yes. That is a pro. <laughs> that, yeah. That's one pro. Um, and that's kind of what happens in the 1993 letter. But George obviously wanted to do, I guess, something different. And, you know, when Monero, you were talking about earlier... And, and as Chloe was talking about, like, Catelyn wanting to stay with her dying father, you've been talking about Catelyn's grief and how much that's driving her and the very, very human choices that Catelyn makes. And I think in general, besides duty, she loves her father very much, even though he failed like his other kid, like, <laughs> a whole hell of a lot. Um, she she wanted to be there. She wanted to be there to say goodbye to her father, and I think that's a very normal thing that anyone would want to be there at the end of their parents' life. Yeah. Except for Lysa, because Lysa's like, mm, he could kick rocks. <laughs> but, yeah. She does think that. I mean, she has she has reason. Now. She has reasons. She has major she, reasons. She's like, he could that. die. It's fine. It's fine. Most men do in my life, and I'd be happy with that, Liza. Thanks. <laughs> uh, except then she dies. Fuck. Well, that that's uh that's pretty depressing. The whole chapter, because you know, then Catelyn dies eventually, and it's all just lost. Because Catelyn's life and death are depressing. They yeah. are. They are. And I wish um a lot more people would kind of cut her a break about the Jon Snow thing, and mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. really really take stock of this this woman who is just. Whose whose life has taken such a dramatic turn because of choices? Choices have consequences, right? And so I'm gonna blame the Lannisters because obviously wherever the Lannisters go, they 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 bring death and destruction <laughs> wherever they go. And so life was great until they came to Winterfell, and then and everything changed. And everything changed also because Littlefinger, you know, was you know putting his fingers into everything. That also played oh. a huge part. <laughs> that also played a huge part. You know, he was fingering things, and so... Oh my god. Damn it! It didn't get better. <laughs> it was worse that time, Monero. What's wrong with you? Goddamn. <sighs> yeah, but, you know, Littlefinger, you know, she ended up being a victim also of Littlefinger. Yeah. Also, and because of in her refusal to kind of see the truth, again, she made choices and those choices had consequences. And it was just, it just became, it's like a tumbleweed. It just keeps mm. getting bigger and, or a snowball and an avalanche. Yeah. And it just kept going and going and going. Coming. And it's yeah. unfortunate. Even now in her rebirth, I feel it's just sad for me. Yes, she can get this vengeance. And yes, we can. We can cheer her, like, killing off Freys and other people, but this woman is just like a shell of how she started, and now she's this undead creature that's just (laughs) walking around, satisfying the need for vengeance that, you know, a lot of us readers have. 
But we still have to remember that she was just once a person who just, life just kept kicking and kicking and kinking. Even her death was... (sighs) Yeah, hurtful. (laughs) Her death was like, I just, when you read it, I was like, even in death, she doesn't even get a break, even in death. Mm-hmm. I just hope that if anybody just hated her because of the way that she treated John, that's just, I blame her treatment of John on Ned anyway. So not yeah. that she, not that she couldn't have taken accountability for her actions, but I blame a lot of how she treated John on Ned because Ned could have intervened and he, he failed to do so. And yeah. so I think that made her feel like she had license to keep doing it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Totally agree on that. All right. What do you think, ladies? I think we thoroughly railed through the chapter, you know, through Jamie, through Catalan. Especially with the railing. (laughs) Yep. Railing, through. Yeah, and yeah. There was actually no railing in this chapter, unfortunately, for us. I've been so let down. So let down. (laughs) I thought Uh, this was the sex dungeon chapter. I know, right? Why did we just the dungeon with shit? Yeah. There was all this talk of swords and long swords and mm, and true. Sorry to have led you on, ladies, but you know you're gonna have to take me out to dinner first before the railing is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Monero, thank you so much for joining us for this chapter. We have had so much fun with you this evening. Please let everyone at home know where they can find you and what they should look forward to on your channel again. You can find me on YouTube at Monero Geek TV. I am on Twitter at Monero Unlimited. But I just use it to let people DM me. I'm not really an active. <laughs> I'm not really. I, I don't tweet because mm, I'm not really that cool to tweet things. <laughs> but you can always DM me. Say hi. And uh, like I stated before in the beginning, I am going to be starting a series called Naro Bedtime Stories. Well, I'll be reading excerpts from some of my favorite books in a sort of ASMR-ish style. So that will be debuting in September. And thank you so much, ladies, for having me on. I truly appreciate it. This was fun for me. I'm glad. And thank you for joining us. You know, it's, Chloe said earlier, it's been a while since we've gotten to catch up. So, so glad we could have you on. And yeah, looking forward to Naro Bedtime Stories. I am too. Not only Naro Bedtime Stories, but Naro Naruto also. Oh, wait, you should call it. Oh my Naruto? god, my microphone just fell. I was too excited. Um, <laughs> yeah, you could call it Naruto. Naruto. Manaruto. Oh my you god. Can <gasps> I'm going to have to keep that. I might have to go ahead and steal that. Go ahead and workshop that, girl. Yeah. You got it. It's yours. It's all yours. It's yours. <laughs> I, my it's name's not Monero, so it doesn't, it doesn't really work for me. Yeah, so. it doesn't work for either of us. <laughs> Well, we'll definitely be in touch, and we hope to have you back sometime in the future as well. Have you for another POV? Who knows what our future POVs could be? No Who one knows. knows. We've been Except getting for us. <laughs> yeah, you know, we have been getting a lot of emails and messages and guesses mm-hmm. about the POV lately, and I know a lot of these people are looking for confirmation to whether they're right or wrong, and I don't plan on giving it to them. And you're just gonna have to wait. Uh, but if you'd like to harass us about our next POV, you could do so on social media too. You can send us a tweet or a DM over at Girls Gone Canon, C A N O N, on Twitter, or you could send us an email with your thoughts on what the next POV might be at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, we're deciding between whether or not we should do Ariane or Sansa next as the next POV. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Again. <laughs> no, that, those were jokes. Uh, 
we did those POVs. Um, and you can find those episodes or any future episodes as they come out when you subscribe to us on Podbean, where everything is hosted, on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, Overcast. That was good enough. Yeah, you did great. You did great. <laughs> thank I didn't you. Even think you added in you. And if you cannot find us on one of those or do not want to find us on one of those, you can find <laughs> us over at patreon.com slash girls gone canon, where patrons get their own private RSS feed that'll load straight into their phone when you get set up. Uh, and it includes also our special episodes if you sign up for the stranger tier or above, which is US $5 stranger tier and above. And that's not the only place you can get some extra perks on Patreon. Patrons in the Thunder tier also have access to our Discord, where we chat about anything and everything, usually very intelligible conversations happening there. And uh, you could also hang out and come to brunch or happy hour this month if you're a patron in that tier, because we'll be having that August 28th with more info to be announced. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. And thank you so much to our other, other host this time. <laughs> thank you. Am I supposed to say Monaro? I mean, it would make me personally happy, but you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just did. So Perfect. You did. Okay. Amazing. We got it. All right. Bye. Bye. And End recording. Maybe.